Welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right. Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Let's go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. It's a Saturday morning. What are you doing? Wake up. Get up. Let's go. Let's go. Come on, man. We got 24 hours, 48 hours to do something with your lives. What are you doing? I got an idea. I know what you can do. Welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Konnichiwa. Wassalamu alaikum. Shalom. Namaste, my brothers and sisters. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos? Mi amo a Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Before I begin, what's going on, man? What's happening? You good? You all right? You hanging in there? You doing well? You doing fine? Living life? Living life to the fullest? How's the husband? How's the kids? How's the wife? How's the mistress? How's the girlfriend? How's everything going? Everything going the way you want it to be going? All right. All right. That's cool. That's good. Remember, man. Remember, we have to uh, move this country forward. Why does this country hate each other? We got to find a solution. We have to sit down, have a frank conversation about what's happening, about what's going on. How can we improve? How can we get better? Listening, learning, education, experience, talking with each other. Getting the niceties out of the way, not wanting to hurt anybody's uh, feelings. Let's go, man. Let's do this. We can do this. Don't do it for us. Set that foundation. Set that foundation for your children and then your grandchildren and then their great-great-grandchildren. Let's move this country forward. We can do it. Love, peace, harmony, togetherness, and oppression, and discrimination, and bigotry, and misogyny, and all of the hates based on race, based on gender, based on a uh, all those type of things. We can do it. We can do it. My generation won't be able to do it, but come on, man, for the younger generation, for the younger folks, let's try to put the united into what is now a divided, selfish, ignorant states of America. We can do it. We can do it for our, for our sake. We need to do it. Wendell's World and Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be joining us. Recording this on a Saturday morning. What time is it right now? Going on 9 a.m. Good, all right. Still about have time to finish this bad boy and go get me some donuts. Yeah. So, uh, man, this is great, man, because you know what? For the entire day, I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have no idea what I'm going to do. For the first time in months, I have a total, I have a full day for whatever I want to do. And you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to sit here in my uh, place over here in Northwest Las Vegas in my townhome. And I'm just going to do nothing but binge watch some crime and justice shows. I'm just going to go ahead and surf the internet. I'm just going to go ahead and take a couple of naps. I'm just going to go ahead, maybe watch an NBA basketball game. I'm going to go ahead, maybe watch a Major League Baseball game. I am going to do nothing except sit back and relax. See what I can find on YouTube. See what I can uh, find maybe on Netflix this evening. Watch a movie or something like that. But I've got a boatload of uh, crime and justice documentaries that I want to uh, get started on. As soon as I'm done 
with this podcast, recording this podcast. I'll publish it and do all that nonsense later. But I've got, after I'm done with this podcast recording, I've got Ted Bundy documentaries I want to watch. I've got Ed Ketford documentaries I want to watch. I've got the Green River Killer documentary <clears throat> I want to watch. I've got John Wayne Gacy documentary on Peacock I've got to watch. I've got the Richard Cunningham the stowed away on YouTube in my history section that I want to watch. There's a whole bunch of serial killers. There's a whole bunch of folks killing other folks that I want to uh, be watching today. Of course, I'm speaking about unity. Of course, I'm speaking about harmony. Of course, I'm speaking about loving each other. Of course, I'm speaking about bringing everybody together under the umbrella of love, peace, harmony, togetherness. So, Wendell, what are you going to do today? Of course, I want to spend the whole day watching serial killers. Yeah! That'll bring in the unity and love with each other. I'm just saying, man. Crime and justice. John Douglas. R.I.P. to Roy Hazelwood. A couple of my heroes. Bill Curtis. Getting in there. So, yeah, man. I've got a whole bunch of uh, bin watching I want to do in terms of criminal justice is concerned. I've got the uh, Dorothea Puente uh, documentary that I want to watch. Man, there's a situation also on the uh, Investigative Discovery Channel about the Lion Sisters. Anybody from the Washington, D.C. area, especially around... My age group, especially if you're speaking about Silver Spring, Wheaton, Gaithersburg, Rockville, anywhere, grew up in that uh, area of D.C., suburbs of D.C., Maryland. Um, remember the Lion Sisters. Went to Wheaton Plaza, was uh, abducted, never seen or heard from again. And then I believe, I don't know, like seven years ago, they finally found some real tasty and interesting leads and some real evidence that they could solve the case. So I, 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 the people who did it, I think are dead. And, you know, there was up there in the hills of Delaware or some nonsense like that. So I'm going to uh, get myself reacclimated, reacclimated with that case. There's a two hour, two hour special that the ID channel did months ago, which I DVR'd. Now I'm going to have the opportunity to uh, go ahead and watch it. So I'm going to watch that today. The Lion Sisters. I remember that. My mom was always like, yeah, you ain't going out by yourself. You remember the Lion Sisters? Uh-uh. Wheaton Plaza. Uh-uh. You ain't going anywhere. This is when I was like, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. Like, uh-uh. You ain't doing that shit. New, 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 new. So, yeah. That's what I'm going to be doing today, man. That's what I'm going to be doing today. When you don't have kids, when you don't have a girlfriend, when you don't have a wife, hey, man, you know, you do what you need to do. You do the best that you can to move forward with what you got. I'm working with what I got and trying to do the best that I can, including doing this podcast. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that we could be with you. Glad that I could be with you. Glad that you're listening. Whenever you are listening, so what are we going to be talking about today, man? What do you want to hear me talk about? What do you want to hear me spit? What do you want to hear me ramble on? What do you want to have me give my thoughts and opinions about today? Man, I've got, uh, we got the NFL draft coming up less than a week, right? The Thursday, when I'm going to be sitting in Mesquite. I've got the NBA, no, excuse me, the NFL draft, April 29th, May 1st. We're still talking about these quarterbacks. We're still talking about Mac Jones. We're still talking about... Justin Fields, we're still talking about Trey Lance, not too much about Trevor Lawrence. You see Trevor Lawrence and his girlfriend are like, yeah, we're going to be donating some money to some charities, a couple of thousand dollars or, you know, five-figure uh, donation to a charity because of some of the comments that we made in the Sports Illustrated article. 
Trev, let me tell you something. Let me tell you and your gal something. Man, when you're talking about the NFL, when you're speaking about a quarterback play in the NFL, if you're a franchise quarterback, if you can come out and have the type of uh, start that a Dan Marino in 1983 did, like a Patrick Mahomes in 20-whatever, when he came out and lit the world on fire, if you can come out and be close to those type of things, if you could be close to those type of numbers, if you could be close to that type of impact, let me tell you something, man. It don't matter how much or how little type of money that you give to charity. It doesn't matter how much you bungle and say in a Sports Illustrated article about your dedication toward football. It don't mean shit if you can come out and you can play. Man, the folks of Jacksonville, as long as they've been downtrodden with their football team, they don't give a damn about what type of charity contribution that you make. It might be nice, it might be sweet, it might be wonderful, but let me tell you something, man. If you come out and you prove to be a bust, it doesn't matter how much money you give to charity. They're going to be like, get rid of his ass. They're still going to boo your ass on Sunday. They could be like, great guy, nice guy, wonderful guy. If I had a daughter, that's the type of guy I would want to uh, have her meet. But as far as me and our quarterback for our team is concerned, get him out of here. So it don't matter. On the other side... You could go ahead and be, I don't, I'm not going to say Aaron Hernandez-ish, but uh, you can go out and be, shall we say, the most, you can be not the most charitable person. You can go out and be a complete jerk. You can go out and basically be an asshole. But if you win, but if you live up to your expectations, if you live up to your potential, them folks in Jacksonville, I'm talking about the community, I'm talking about the season ticket holders, I'm talking about the advertisers, and I'm talking about the franchise, they won't care. Man, as long as you're not going out Deshaun Watsoning people or going out and Aaron Hernandezing people, they will not care. And even if you're going out and Deshaun Watsoning people, I'm quite sure if you're good enough of a quarterback, they'll find a way to uh, excuse you from that. And I'm not just not talking about the organization, I'm also talking about the fan base. I'm also talking about the season ticket holders. I'm also talking about the folks who buy your merchandise. I'm also talking about the sponsors. I'm also talking about the advertising partners. If you can be a top-tier quarterback, uh, Trevor, that's all that matters. So don't worry about, you know, trying to make amends or trying to explain or trying to educate those who might look at you sideways in terms of what you said in the Sports Illustrated article about your, de you know, dedication and passion and all those things, things about your NFL career. You're not in the position that the Justin Fields is. You can, uh, you can have that double standard because of your skills, because of your talent, and you're still going to be drafted first. And let me tell you something, man. If the Washington football team, if my Washington football team had the number one draft, had the number one pick in the draft, you think I'm going to be backing off Trevor Lawrence because he said football is not... He doesn't have some type of maniacal type of addiction to being a quarterback in football. That's okay. I've seen you play. I've seen you play at Clemson. I know how good you are. <laughs> we'll draft you. I don't give a damn. That's great. Fine. Good. He's a well-rounded human being. Good. Fine. Wonderful. Fantastic. I mean, you don't have to be Tom Brady-ish to uh, win Super Bowls. Last time I checked, other folks other than Tom Brady won a Super Bowl that weren't 24-7 uh, fully dedicated to football the way that you... Some scouts feel that you have to be. Again, what's our definition here? Where are we going with here? If Trevor Lawrence is putting in the time to be a great quarterback, if he's a strong competitor, but yet when everything is all said and done, he can go ahead and have other things to do in life, well, then okay, that's fine. That's wonderful. That's, that's good enough. I mean, Tom, Tom Brady has how many kids? How many By how many different women? So it looked like he took some time off from uh, studying and preparing to uh, do some things. 
I mean, the man looks like he has other things to do in his life other than 24-7 study, 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 study. Shoot, the Washington football team with my Snagger skins had the number one pick in the uh, NFL draft. Anything less than Trevor Lawrence? Man, let's go to FedEx Field and burn that thing down to the ground. Heck yeah. So don't worry about that nonsense. So with Trevor Lawrence, so it's always... It's always funny to me about, you know, oh my goodness gracious, we have to go ahead. Like, a charitable contribution is going to quell some of the uh, worries that someone might have about Trevor Lawrence after reading that Sports Illustrated article. Like, somehow making a charitable donation to a um, to one of the communities or one of the um, deals over in Jacksonville is supposed to ease people's fears about Trevor Lawrence not being passionate enough about the game of football. Don't, don't worry about it. I don't, I don't care. I don't care about how much money you give the donations. I don't care how many old ladies you walk across the street. I don't care how many cats you rescued from trees. I don't care how many books you read to kids. I don't care about how many dollars you um, contribute to communities. I don't give a damn about all that. In the bottom line of things, win football games, win Super Bowls, win titles, and win MVPs. You do all that kind of nonsense, keep all your money, man. I don't understand you. If you're, I'm one of these guys, call me selfish, but if I'm a millionaire, I ain't giving my money to shit. I ain't giving my money to nobody. Yeah, I'm building myself a foundation. It's called the Wendell Wallace Make Me Richer Foundation. Mm-hmm. I have Oprah's uh, type of attitude when it comes to my money. Shoot, I earn this money, I keep my money. You want to do the same thing? You do the same thing. You want my help? I'll give you some help. Here's my help. Here's my tip. Here's my contribution. Here's my charitable donation. Go out and work hard. That's my charitable donation. You ain't touching a penny. You ain't touching a dime. You ain't getting a dollar from me, Jack. Mm-mm. That's right. Because any money that I don't take with me, if you can't put my money in the grave when I'm dead, I'm giving it to Cindy Davis. Uh, Sydney. Gee, I'm sorry, Sydney. I'm giving it to Sydney Davis and let her spend the rest of my money when I die. So get that right. Mikel Davis is still living while I'm dead. He can have my money and Sidney Davis can have my money if I don't have any other kids, which seems which seems like a pretty much a slam dunk in this case. So yeah, my beautiful, wonderful, magnificent, awesome, intelligent goddaughter, if I'm super duper rich, you think I'm going to be <clears throat> giving my money to a bunch of chumps? Hell no. Get yourself off the streets and get your own money. Work and get your own damn money. My money is going to be spent by me, and when I'm dead, Sidney Davis is going to be able to spend my riches. Of course, now, moving back into the real world, since I'm broke, <clears throat> my gift to Sidney Davis is I'm not going to include her in my will. So, there you go. So, she can breathe easier at night concerning that. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, yeah, man, speaking about the NFL Draft, Speaking about these quarterbacks are going to be taking, speaking about which teams are going to be moving up, which teams are going to be moving down. In earnest, everybody knows that the Jaguars are going to be drafting Trevor Lawrence out of Clemson. People know, for the most part, that it's a pretty much a foregone conclusion that the New York Jets are going to be selecting Zach Wilson. So it only gets interesting. You only bring out your popcorn with the San Francisco 49ers. What's going to be happening? Because depending upon the selection by the San Francisco 49ers, that's when the domino effect, I believe, is going to begin. When you're speaking about franchises like the Atlanta Falcons or the Detroit Lions, the Denver Broncos, the Dallas Cowboys, 
the New York Giants. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? Then moves down to the um, New England Patriots, the Washington Snyderskins, the Chicago Bears. What are we going to do? What's Atlanta going to do? Let's just say, for instance, I mean, we know pretty much, I don't think with 100% guarantee because none of us has been in that room. None of us has talked to Kyle Shanahan. None of us has talked to John Lynch. None of us has been privy to those conversations. But let's just go on the assumption that the 49ers are going to select uh, Mac Jones. Mac Jones. Mac Jones, Mac Jones, Mac Jones. So depending upon that, what are the Atlanta Falcons going to do? Are they going to draft a quarterback? Are they going to draft somebody like a Trey Lance because they believe that Matthew Stafford, not only Matthew Stafford, but Matt uh, Ryan has a couple of more years left. So while Ryan continues to play, we can go ahead and groom ourselves a quarterback. Kind of like what the, um, kind of like what the Green Bay Packers did with um, Brett Favre when they drafted Aaron Rodgers. Kind of like what the Kansas City used to be champions did. When they selected Patrick Mahomes, even though they had Alex Smith, somewhere like a Green Bay Packers, where they selected Jordan Love with the uh, with their first round draft pick, while Aaron Jones, excuse me, while Aaron Rodgers was still there. And here's the deal, man: you take a look at those selections at quarterback. They're not talking about <clears throat> number four. Um, Aaron Rodgers, when he was drafted, he wasn't drafted number four. He was drafted number twenty-four. When Jordan Love was drafted, he was drafted number 26. He wasn't drafted by number four. So with the Atlanta Falcons, if you're going to go ahead and draft the quarterback that high, it's going to be someone like a Trey Lance. Do you really believe someone like a Trey Lance in a couple of years can be able to go ahead and take the reins from Matt, uh, Matt Ryan? So you're going to select him instead of going with the Kyle Pitts, the Jamar Chase, maybe move out of the draft spot if you're not really confident enough? I mean, could it be a situation where, you know what, if Justin Fields is going to be continuing to fall, maybe we could make a deal with the Denver Broncos. Maybe we could make a deal with the Dallas Cowboys. Maybe we could make a deal with the New England Patriots and hope and pray that possibly at number 10, at number 12, at number 15, that Justin Fields is going to fall to us anyway. So we'll still get our quarterback of the future and accumulate other draft picks in the meantime. By <clears throat> moving up, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> by moving up and uh, or moving down, excuse me, and uh, <clears throat> you know, accumulating more picks, <clears throat> all of those things are going to happen. What what are the Detroit Lions going to do? Are they going to go and draft a quarterback? Now they just made a trade to bring in Jared Goff, but if Justin Fields is going to fall, or if the San Francisco 49ers select Mac Jones, and then you have the then you have the Cincinnati Bengals select uh, Penny Sewell out of Oregon, and then you have the Miami Dolphins select Jamar Chase out of LSU. If you're the Detroit Lions, are you going to go ahead and maybe draft yourselves a Devonta Smith, a Kyle Pitts, who can come in and possibly help immediately? Maybe go for speed with Jalen Waddle. Maybe reach a little bit. Or are you going to then say, wait a minute now. You know, we've got ourselves a situation where what's our evaluation based on the talent of Trey Lance or a Justin Fields? Because we know for the most part what Jared Goff is. We know his physical makeup, what he is as a quarterback. I think Jared Goff 
when everything is all said and done, if he reaches his potential, and I'm not an offensive coordinator, I'm not an NFL scout, I'm not an NFL passing guru, I'm not a quarterback coach or anything like that, but just based on the physicals, based on his arm strength, based on his mobility, based on all those things, based the how many years he's been in, in the league, I think if Jared Goff reaches, maximizes his potential, I think that he can become a very good system quarterback. I think that he can be a quarterback that if you put him around enough talent can win you Super Bowls. You, we, we saw that with him leading the Los Angeles Rams to the Super Bowl. So he's done it before. So the evidence is there. You put enough talent around this guy, just like every other quarterback in this league, he can win you a Super Bowl. How much talent are we talking about? How many skilled players are we talking about? What side of the uh, ball are we going to accumulate the most talent upon? Because you can't have a great offense and a great defense in the NFL for a long period of time because of the salary cap. So you might have a couple of players on defense playing on a rookie contract or playing, um, you know, uh, playing in that situation where that defense is going to be great. But sooner or later, those really good linebackers, those really good safeties, those really good defensive tackles, they're going to have to get paid. And if you're looking to build a great offense, you can't then turn around and pay the defensive players that amount of money. Because, again, because of the hard salary cap. So if you're the Detroit Lions, what are you going to do? Where are we going to go here? Are we going to try to build around Jared Goff? Are you going to look to build around Jared Goff and eschew selecting Fields or Fields or uh, Mac Jones if he's available or Trey Lance if he's available? If you're going to ride and hit your wagons, if you're the Detroit Lions to Jared Goff, my guess or my thought process, or my thought pattern, and I'm not a GM, so I haven't been in there, is to uh, go ahead and call up the New England Patriots, call up the Chicago Bears, call up the Washington and Fitzpatrick skins, and say, hey man, let's talk. What do you got for me? What's going on? What's happening? With the understanding that, okay, if we accumulate more picks, there's got to be some more folks on the board. Let's take a look at the draft board that we've uh, set up and see if we do move down to number 15, are we still going to get the guy that we want? If we're going to accumulate a couple of more picks, those three guys that we want, maybe we can get ourselves a Rashad Bateman from Minnesota. Maybe we can get ourselves the other wide receiver from LSU. Maybe we can get ourselves a tad in of need. Maybe we can get ourselves a pass rusher that we're thinking about. Maybe we can get one of those players later on in the draft that was graded out somewhere between 14 and 26 and we accumulate another first-round pick, maybe instead of drafting a Kyle Pitts or drafting a quarterback to uh, give competition to Jared Goff, maybe draft, a, uh, maybe draft a wide receiver, maybe we can go ahead and we can maybe not draft a player with a higher ranking upon the draft board, but maybe we can go ahead and get someone who's just a little bit lower than him, but also go ahead and draft someone of a of a need for our team that we wouldn't be able to select if we kept with the number seven pick, who's ranked high also. So there's a lot of thought process. There's a lot of things going on, you know, in those situations. So if I'm the Detroit Lions, I don't know, man. I mean, I've been bringing some competition for uh, Jared Goff. But then again, I haven't been there to watch uh, Matt Jones or Justin Fields or Trey Lance throw. And my thought process is with Matt Jones... Isn't Matt Jones sort of similar to Jared Goff? So I don't know if you're looking for some type of diversity with the, with the squad because you're, you're going to be pulling in one direction as far as your offensive philosophy is concerned. So if your philosophy 
to run that offense is based around the skill set of a Jared Goff, then why would you go ahead and draft yourself Trey Lance, who has different attributes and different uh, strengths amongst his um, quarterbacking skills? Why would you say, okay, we're going to move in the direction of Jared Goff, but with our first-round pick at number seven, we're going to select Trey Lance? What? And if you do that, wouldn't you, if you're really interested in selecting a quarterback, wouldn't you select Justin Fields? Because I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about that. But I, I just, I'm going to get to uh, Justin Fields a little bit later on in my podcast. I, I don't know what exactly is going on. You know who's kind of like in safe mode? You know who's kind of like in safe land? You know who's kind of like in the city of Safeville in terms of any type of, wait a minute now. Why is he being drafted again? Is Zach Wilson. If you take a look at Mac Jones and Trey Lance, and you take a look at those two, why isn't Zach Wilson being thrown into that mix of, are we sure that we want to go there with the number two pick on Zach Wilson? I'll get to that later on in the podcast. Plenty of time for that, but it's just it was just like, wow, that's that's really interesting. So What's Atlanta going to do if the Sanford, when the San Francisco 40? It's not a matter of if Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch select a quarterback. It's a matter of what quarterback is going to be drafted and then what impact does that have? I think Matt Ryan, if you're just matching up similar games, type of games with quarterbacks, similar attributes, similar physical makeup, similar. How can he have the highest impact? I think if you're taking a look at the Atlanta Falcons, if, for instance, again, let's go with the scenario. So what, so what, so what, the scenario. Let's say, for instance, that the San Francisco 49ers select Trey Lance. They're going to keep Garoppolo, and then they're going to uh, groom Trey Lance to eventually take that job, maybe for the 2022 season. All right. So, the 49ers shock the world, select Trey Lance. If you're the Atlanta Falcons and you say, okay, we've got Matt Ryan, but we might also have the opportunity, we're not might, we have the opportunity to select Justin Fields or Matt Jones. If they decide that they're going to to select a quarterback, wouldn't they select Matt, uh, Matt Jones? Because if you take a look at Matt Ryan, and Matt Jones, aren't they more similar to the type of games that they play, the type of uh, their, their game structure, their physical attributes, their style of play? Isn't Matt Jones more in tune with the way Matt Ryan plays compared to Justin Fields? And I think that's the same thing with the Detroit Lions. If they're going to be selecting a quarterback, wouldn't Matt Jones fit more, if you're speaking about, you know, quarterbacks being similar, Mac Jones, Jared Goff, more than Justin Fields. Now, that's not to say that Justin Fields wouldn't be a better quarterback because I think Justin Fields is a better quarterback than Mac Jones. I think Justin Fields is more proven than Mac Jones. But if these teams are going to go now, I don't know what direction Arthur Smith is going to be looking to do as a uh, head coach. I know he had Ryan Tannehill and did a great job with him when he was in Tennessee at the offensive coordinator. So maybe it's a situation if you're taking a look where Arthur Smith is going to be wanting to replicate that type of offense or have that type of quarterback, then he would go with a Justin Fields. 
who I think skill set uh, is similar to Ryan Tannehill with the new coach for Atlanta and his background, the way he got the job, the way he came on the radar, the way he became a candidate and then ultimately got the job with the Atlanta Falcons is what he did in Tennessee with that offense, resurrecting the career of Ryan Tannehill, getting great, great numbers in production from Derrick Henry. So if he's going to be, if Mr. Smith is going to be bringing that type of offense to Atlanta, Mr. Smith ain't going to Washington, he's going to Atlanta, and he's going to be bringing in that type of offense, and he wants to have that type of offense, and he wants to go in the direction of drafting a quarterback. Then, if the 49ers select Trey Lance, I think that the Atlanta Falcons then would go and draft Justin Fields if that's the direction. So many it's, ifs and buts and turns and what's that we don't know. And again, we're not, we weren't invited to the, to the meeting for Atlanta or Detroit in terms of who are they going to selecting. At least I wasn't. Now, if you were, hey man, hit me up so you can tell me exactly what's going on. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So what team is going to be making that move to move up in the draft, move down in the draft? We've got New England, we've got Washington, we've got Carolina, we've got Dallas, we've got Cincinnati, we've got Atlanta. Oh yeah, I said Cincinnati. Uh-huh. We've got uh, Carolina. What's going to be happening? We've got the New York Giants. What's going to be happening? What is going to be happening with these teams? Exactly where can they go? What can the Chicago Bears offer to say someone like these Carolina Panthers? Or someone like the Atlanta Falcons. Or someone like the Dallas Cowboys. What can they offer? What can they give? And if you're someone like the New England Patriots, again, if you see Justin Fields sliding, do you say, hold on, big doggy. Let's sit here and um, maybe he'll fall to us at 15. I'm quite sure if we get to number 10. Say, for instance, if uh, Fields falls, if Denver doesn't select. Denver stays at number 9 and they don't select Justin Fields. That's the time I think Bill Belichick, <clears throat> Bill Belichick needs to get on the phone and start calling people and finding out what the hell is going on with Justin Fields. What 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 is it that we don't know that you know which is preventing Fields from being drafted? Because I'm sorry, I mean them folks can sit up there and talk about hey hey Drew Locke is coming in early and staying late and doing all these type of things and he's really dedicated and this that and the other. That's great and that's wonderful. That's fantastic. But um, my prognostication is. I think in the long run that Justin Fields is going to be a better quarterback than Drew Locke. Again, with my ignorance and experience concerning NFL quarterbacks. I still think <clears throat> just the uh, <clears throat> just this deal that I think that uh, Justin Fields <clears throat> is going to be a better quarterback. I think Trey Lance ultimately could be a better quarterback <clears throat> than, um, than Drew Locke. But if Mac Jones is selected, if Trey Lance is selected... And then we get to number nine, and Denver decides not to go with a quarterback? Yeah, if I'm Washington, if I'm New England, if I'm Chicago, I'm getting on the phone saying, what the hell is going on here? What is it about Justin Fields that you know that we don't know, which is preventing teams from drafting him? Did he flunk a drug test? Did he... Is he more of a complete asshole than people have led on to? I'm not saying that he is, but I mean, have there been reports that in Ohio State he was a complete and utter ass? I mean, is it the epilepsy, which I'll be talking about? If that's, is that scaring people off? I mean, what exactly is going on with this guy? So if I'm New England, you know, I'm, I'm making those calls if Fields falls past 
number nine. So if the situation where it's like, yeah, man, you know, there's some stuff going on with Justin Fields where it's like, Ew. there might be hint of uh, arrogance. There might be hint of, you know, this guy, Dwayne Haskins 2.0. I mean, there's some scuttlebutt. There's some chatter that, you know what, he was an arrogant ass. He was a guy that really didn't put in the work. He was a guy that relied only on his uh, talent. He was a guy that, uh, you know, when things got tough, he got going. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But, I mean, if it's a situation like that, you know, New England looks around and says, well, if that's the case, and we've got, you know, this, 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 this team in front of us who don't need a quarterback, who aren't going to select fields, why do we need to go ahead and trade? Why don't we just stick here at number 15 and select Justin Fields? So, I don't know. Those things we will be speaking about at the NFL Draft begins in earnest from Cleveland, April 29th. Wendell's World and Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. NBA playoffs are starting soon. <laughs> We've got some interesting first-round matchups. I remember on my last podcast, I was speaking about the, um, I was speaking about the New York Knicks about <clears throat> for the league, it's good, it's great, it's awesome. They've won, what, nine in a row? Something like that? I think it's great, good, great, awesome that the uh, Knicks making the playoffs fantastic, wonderful. But from a Knicks organizational standpoint, it's like, okay, when we lose in the first round and we look back and say, you know what, maybe this season, okay, small, Mike, uh, you know, uh, small picture, good, big picture. We missed out on Kate Cunningham. We missed out on Evan Mobley. We missed out on Jonathan Kaminga. We missed out on Jalen Shrugs. And we missed out on Jalen Green. So this season might be nice, but is this going to be consistent? Or is this just because of this wooly, wacky season, 72 games, very short off season, not too many folks, if any, in the stands? What's, what can we deduce from this season, if you're the New York Knicks. Can Julius Randle repeat the year that he's having right now? I mean, the players, how long is it going to be before Tom Thibodeau wears out the organization? Is it going to be two years? Is it going to be five years? Is it going to be halfway through next year when the Knicks aren't living up to expectations? Because let's say, let's just say, for instance, the Knicks make, make the playoffs. The pretty, we're going to go on the assumption that the Knicks are going to be making the playoffs. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. So they're going to be making the playoffs. They beat the Hawks or they beat whoever they're going to be playing in the first round. They make it to the semifinals. And hell, let's say they take the 76ers to six hard-fought games, right? Next season, right, Knicks fans? Come on now. Y'all know what your expectations are going to be. Man, let's move it up another level. You know, Julius Randle is only going to get better. Reggie Bullock has been unbelievable. Emmanuel Quigley is only going to get better. Derrick Rose is going to be that solid guy. You know, we've, we've got some pieces here to where we should be better. So it's like the expectations for the Knicks for the 2021-22 season are really going to be off the charts. So if the Knicks start off and they're scuttlebutting or they're uh, stumbling and stumbling and bumbling like sometimes I do with my podcast out the gate I mean what's a Tom Thibodeau feel atmosphere going to be like that around this team next season if that happens so there's a whole lot of deals going on here to where I'm just going to say I don't know man I mean again I think it's great for the NBA it would be even better if 
um, New York had a decent mayor and something could be done to where we could be at a point where you could put some folks in the Madison Square Garden for a playoff game because that would be absolutely fantastic. First time in seven years, you know, to be in that atmosphere. But, um, you know, it, it's it's great. It's wonderful for the league and it's awesome. A major market in a season where the NBA ratings are down and everything like that to have New York back in play, at least as a playoff team, I think it's awesome. But long term, what are going? What are we going to be talking about? Every year, the NBA's wet dream is having the New York Knicks play the Los Angeles Lakers in the NBA championship, right? Wouldn't it be? Shouldn't it be the two biggest markets in the uh, NBA? I mean, I'm sorry, this ain't football. Football, you can get away with the Green Bay Packers playing the Pittsburgh Steelers, or you can get away with the Jacksonville Jaguars playing the. Uh, I don't know, man, playing the uh, Arizona Cardinals or some shit like that. Basically, what I'm saying is with the Super Bowl, you've got an audience that's built in that's going to be close to 75, 80, 90 million. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. The Indianapolis Colts could be playing the, I don't know, who gives the fucks of the NFL and 75, 80 million people are still going to watch. And you could have a spring practice and the ratings for the spring practice of the Jacksonville Jaguars is going to probably blow away Game 7 of the NBA championship between the LeBron James-led school, this, that, and the other, and the Giannis Adenokupo, Milwaukee Bucks, blah, blah, blah. It don't matter. LeBron James ain't going to save the NBA from the juggernaut known as the NFL. There's no pro athlete. There's no pro sports. There's no sports team that's going to save the their league from what is the juggernaut of sports leagues in this country, which is the NFL. Doesn't matter. You could have Game 7 of the World Series between the Los Angeles Dodgers and the New York Yankees, Garrett Cole going up against uh, uh, Clayton Kershaw. And if the Cincinnati Bengals decide to hold a walkthrough and CBS is going to televise that nationally, that's going to, that's going to destroy, ratings-wise, interest-wise, Game 7 of... Well, I shouldn't say that. But basically, you know what I'm getting at, right? But basically, football supersedes everything. But the NBA, if you have a finals where it's going to be the Sacramento Kings versus the Indianapolis Pacers, no one's going to watch. Nobody. Except for the hardcore basketball fans. Nobody's going to watch. If you don't have LeBron James, if you don't have Steph Curry, if you don't have Kevin Durant, if you don't have James Harden, if you don't have Giannis... If you don't have Luka, if you don't have those type of superstars playing in the NBA Finals, nobody is going to watch except family, friends, and diehards. You need stars and you need big markets in your finals. So if the Knicks can get relevant, if the Knicks can get elite, not Brooklyn, but New York, the New York Knicks, if they could find a way, if they could find a path, if they could overcome that huge obstacle known as James Dolan to get themselves in a place where they're going to be playing in conference finals, where they're going to be playing in NBA championships, and playing in conference finals and holding epic six, seven game series. If they can do that, if the Knicks can get to that point, if the Knicks can get to the only place they've been since Patrick, or ever since Patrick Ewing left, the Knicks have been dormant, they've been a joke. They've been abysmal, they've been inept, they've been incompetent, they've been irrelevant. If the Knicks can get back to the days of Georgetown-led and now Georgetown's coach, Patrick Ewing, 
get back to the days of Pat Riley walking the sidelines and Jeff Van Gundy, along with Grandmama Larry Johnson, along with uh, Latrell Sprewell, along with John Starks, along with Charles Oakley, along with R.I.P. Anthony Mason, along with uh, um, Greg Anthony. If they can get back to those squads that challenged the Chicago Bulls, for NBA supremacy that went to the uh, 1994 NBA Finals and played against Akeem Olajuwon in the uh, in the NBA Finals, even though that Finals was uh, pretty low during that time because, you know, OJ decided to kill a couple of people and then get in his Bronco and drive around L.A. for a few hours. But, um, you know, if the NBA can get to the point where they can uh, have the Knicks be that good, be that team? Oh, man, would Madison Avenue be dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas and dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie if they could have something like that and then still have LeBron come in and play? Ooh, man, damn shit, fuck, that would be something else. So, yeah, for the NBA, you need basically the New York Knicks to maximize your, uh, your deal with the league. The Knicks have been dormant and irrelevant long enough. They are... For all intent and purposes, the Notre Dame of the NBA, the Alabama, like how important college football is when Notre Dame and Alabama are great, that's the New York Knicks for the NBA. How the Dallas Cowboys and the Green Bay Packers and the Pittsburgh Steelers, how important they are for the NFL in terms of interest, in terms of viewership, that's the same thing with the Knicks. So damn Kevin Durant, damn Kyrie Irving. <laughs> I understand where you were going. I understand that you were doing. I understand the journey that you made. I understand the decision that you made from a basketball standpoint because you take a look at Joe Sy, the owner of the Brooklyn Nets. You took a look at James Dolan of the New York Knicks. So I can understand why you would choose Brooklyn over New York. But damn, boy, if those guys... Just imagine the interest level in the Knicks right now. If Kevin Durant... James Harden and Kyrie Irving were playing for the New York Knicks. Now, to acquire James Harden, the Knicks would have to have given up, um, would have had to given up uh, Julius Randle. So we couldn't be speaking about that as a force to say, could you imagine those three along with Julius Randle? No, you can't because to acquire James Harden, Julius Randle would be playing for the Houston Rockets right now, who I think currently are two and four hundred and sixty-five. So, um, that would have been awesome. That would have been great. But, you know, I'm thinking about the long-term and short-term level when you're speaking about the playoffs in the NBA. Playoffs, yes, playoffs in the NBA. That, yes, it's going to be a good little, you know, it's going to be a good little night on the town, get drunk, get tipsy type of deal with the New York Knicks making the playoffs. But when the season's over and you miss the opportunity for the Knicks to get themselves a marquee player, possibly like a Jalen Shrugs or a Jalen Green or a um, Cade Cunningham, that hangover is going to be tough to overcome. But, you know, let's just, let's just enjoy the day, I guess, huh? So you've got some really interesting first-round matchup potentially. You've got Boston and Milwaukee. Boston is playing better. Milwaukee silently has been playing some really good basketball silently. Giannis Adenokupo has been playing some really good basketball because of the fact that he won the MVP the last two years and then flamed out as a team, as the leader of the team going into the playoffs or in the playoffs with the uh, Milwaukee Bucks where they lost to the Toronto Raptors uh, the year that Toronto and Kawhi won the NBA championship the first year that Giannis won the MVP. Then the second year that Giannis repeated 
won the MVP, that they flamed out against the Miami Heat in the bubble. Kind of cooled on the woo, yeah, hey, 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 Giannis Antetokounmpo. Plus, I mean, look, we've told the story about Giannis. I think there's a documentary about Giannis. There's a 30 for 30 about Giannis. I think we squeezed all of the interest concerning the story of Giannis Antetokounmpo out. And you know how I am. You know how you are. You know how your buddies are. You know how your husband is. You know how your friends are. You know how your coworkers are. You know how society is. It's like we get kind of uh, bored pretty easily with stories. And we look for the next story very quickly. So once we squeezed out all of the interesting points about Giannis and his upbringing and what he's doing now and all those type of things to add to the storylines, to add to the strength of him winning the MVP, not once but twice, we're, we're looking for something new. So for Giannis... To have the Milwaukee Bucks in the position that he has them in right now. Okay, we've told that story. We know that story. Nothing new to that story. And the rise of Adenokupo and his numbers are similar to what they were when he won the MVP both times. Okay, we've seen this. Yeah, we know this. Uh, his game, yeah, looks kind of similar to uh, the two times that he won the MVP. So, okay, seen there. Seen that. Been there. Done that. You got anything else for us? Anything new? Anything interesting? Oh, look at the shiny new object over here known as the Brooklyn Nets. Oh, take a look over there. The shiny new object known as the Phoenix Suns. Oh, take a look at that. LeBron's being injured. And let's talk about that. Oh, you know, so it's just other things moving on. Oh, Nikola Jokic is going to win the MVP. The first center said Shaq to win the MVP. Oh, look at the debate between uh, Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic. Uh, should we be counting... How many games a player missed when we're speaking about the MVP of the NBA? Ooh, how about that? Tim Bontemps called Brian Woodhorse a jackass on his podcast. Let's talk about that. Ooh, you know, so there's other things that people, me, you, everybody else that are interested in other than speaking about Giannis Adenokupo. So because of that, he's way out in Milwaukee or way up in Milwaukee. He's not really in consideration for the MVP, especially the April that uh, Steph Curry had and some other things going down. So, you know, so so Milwaukee has fallen under the radar, but um, don't look now. But if James Harden, and that setback with his hamstring, Kevin Durant, I think it's going to be coming back this weekend to play the Phoenix Suns. That's a game that I'm going to be extremely interested in. The um, Phoenix Suns versus the Brooklyn Nets. I'm looking forward to that on Sunday. So, you know, with all of these things in the Eastern Conference, we speak. We keep speaking about the Nets, and we keep speaking about the 76ers, and we keep speaking about the Celtics, and we keep uh, speaking about recently the New York Knicks. The Milwaukee Bucks are just like, all right, cool. We'll just go ahead and we'll just keep winning, and then we'll shock the world for the naysayers when the playoffs hits. Maybe this is the time. We keep speaking about Eastern Conference Finals being Brooklyn and Philadelphia. And those two are going to be the teams that determine who's going to be winning the Eastern Conference Championship. People have kind of slept a little bit about the Milwaukee Bucks and this streak that they're having. This is not happening, you know, the first week of February or around March Madness. This is getting the time where, you know what, again, the playoffs for the NBA are right around the corner. And if the Bucks, along with the Knicks, can continue this momentum and get some of their players even more healthier 
then don't sleep on the Milwaukee Bucks. You can sit there and look at the shiny new objects woo, of the Milwaukee of uh, the um, the Knicks and the Nets and the 76ers, but uh, don't sleep on the Milwaukee Bucks. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. The podcast, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Western Conference, Lakers continue to struggle a little bit without LeBron. Maybe this is a situation where LeBron James, where before he sustained an injury, the ankle injury against the Atlanta Falcons. Damn, Atlanta Falcons. Wow, how about that? The Atlanta Hawks. Solomon Hill, damn you. He was the MVP. Maybe this even strengthens the argument that LeBron James should be the MVP. Again, depending upon what your definition of the MVP is. Um, the Lakers, man, you know, it was, it was interesting to see um, Anthony Davis 15 minutes, 2 of 10. And look, understandable. He had to play basketball in a while. But aren't we now in a situation where it's like, look, I understand. I'm not saying that, come on, AD, this, that, and the other. But is are we sitting there as a Los Angeles Laker fan saying, come on, man. I mean, you know, how fast are we going to get to the Anthony Davis that we can rely on to play 38 minutes, 40 minutes, and be the dominant force that he is that we need him to be to win a championship? Is that Anthony Davis going to show up? Maybe maybe we don't need him for possibly him in the playoff play-in game. Maybe it's a situation where we don't need him in the first round. But man, sooner or later, if we're going to win a championship more than LeBron, we're going to need Anthony Davis also to get back. Not just him being 50, 55, 60%, but we need him to be close to what he was, if not what he was the year that the uh, last season when... He won his first NBA championship. That's what the Anthony Davis that we need. And if we aren't going to get that MVP, how much pressure is that going to be putting on LeBron when LeBron comes back from an ankle injury? Again, LeBron has been missing a whole lot of games. So don't expect LeBron to come back and play 42 minutes in the NBA playoffs and be the force that he was four, five, six, eight, ten, two years ago. If Anthony Davis is not going to be that guy... What are we going to be asking from as far as LeBron is concerned? Where are we going to be going in terms of who's going to be that other guy that's going to step up? Who's going to be helping out LeBron? Who's going to be helping out AD if you're the Los Angeles Lakers? What, Andre Drummond? What you talking about, Willis? Marcus Saul? Dennis Schroeder? The one who likes to throw out uh, racial epithets at Kyrie Irving? That's the guy you're going to be counting on? Kyle Kuzma? For the Los Angeles Lakers to win, again, especially the way Paul George, I keep coming back to the Los Angeles Clippers, and I keep coming back and focusing on Paul George, who has been playing quietly all-NBA-type basketball. Not for a couple of days, not for a couple of weeks, not just against the bad teams, for the entire flipping season. Maybe the embarrassment of what happened to him in the bubble this past uh, offseason or this past playoff season, and the way he got clowned by his fellow NBAers, maybe that lit a fire under Paul George to be like, you know what, fuck all y'all. I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back with a vengeance, and I'm going to uh, show you what the real Paul Pierce, not Paul, uh, Paul George is all about. Maybe that was the situation. But he's been playing some great basketball. So if he can bring that into the playoffs, 
Kawhi has been resting. Kawhi has been nursing some injuries. Get him ready for the playoffs. I don't know what the situation with Pat- Patrick Beverly is concerned. We do know that Ron- Rajon Rondo always turns up his game tenfold once the uh, playoff hits, especially as you go deeper into the playoffs. So is there a possibility that the Clippers' biggest weakness, um, their squad point guard, has been taken care of? Okay, he wasn't Kyle Lowry. Okay, he isn't Ricky Rubio. But still, you take a look at how valuable and the contributions that Rajon Rondo made for the Lakers last year. If he can duplicate that, come close to that with the Los Angeles Clippers, Paul George continues to play the type of basketball that he's been playing in the regular season, brings that over to the playoffs. Kawhi Leonard does Kawhi Leonard things. Hey, man, I'm taking a look at the Los Angeles Lakers. I'm saying, are you going to be able to beat that if... LeBron James is 68% and Anthony Davis is 74.387654716%. Is that going to be doable? Is that going to be possible? If it is, if you're still a fan of the Los Angeles Lakers and like, yeah, we can do that, well then Dennis Schroeder better be playing out of his ass. Then Marcus Saul better go down to the crossroads in Mississippi and sell, and sell his soul to the devil. So he can come back and play some basketball. Andre Drummond, you better hope that he elevates his game. Kyle Kuzma, you better hope that he elevates his game. Those things, I don't see enough for them to overtake the Clippers if the Clippers are going to be playing like the Clippers are playing right now. So if you're the Lakers, I don't know. Now their first round opponent possibly is going to be the Denver Nuggets. All right. Denver is also without one of their main cogs. But unlike the Lakers, who are going to be getting LeBron James and Anthony Davis back, Denver ain't getting Jamal Murray back, at least not for the playoffs, at least not for this season. What does that mean for Nikola Jokic? (laughs) They didn't look very good um, on Friday against the Golden State Warriors. Now, that's just, you know, the Golden State Warriors, it's a Friday night, this, that, and the other. I mean, there were some signs of, eh, you know what, intensity not there. I remember... <clears throat> a fast break. He didn't get back. Guy made an easy dunk. Mike Malone, the coach of the Nuggets, called a timeout and was infuriated with his team. It was one of those, you know, you don't very rarely, unless you're Greg Popovich in his prime or maybe Thibodeau, very rarely do you see NBA coaches just, you know, show any type of outward like outrage towards their team on any particular play or something like that. If that's going to be done, it's going to be done. Uh, behind closed doors because these are men and you don't embarrass men like that. Well, Mark, uh, Mike Malone was saying, fuck all that bullshit. <laughs> I mean, that was some bullshit transition defense. It was slow. It was lazy. And uh, I'm not happy. I'm not happy at all. So it was like one of those where it's like, hey, man, one of them deals where I'm not going to read too much into that going into the playoffs with the Nuggets. But, you know, <clears throat> if you're the um, Denver Nuggets, you know, what are you going to do without Jamal Murray? Oh, I know. Lose to the Los Angeles Lakers in all actuality. Unless Nikola Jokic, maybe not Nikola Jokic because we know what we're going to get from him, but somebody, Michael Porter Jr., Will Barton, first couple of what, couple of minutes of the Golden State game, he went down, looked like a, a leg injury or something like that. So I, I don't know outside of Michael Porter Jr. who can <clears throat> take over the scoring load for uh, – Jamal Murray, and that doesn't even account to the uh, kinship that he has on the court with Nikola Jokic, the way they play a two-man game. 
Um, the big shots, the way that Murray was able to navigate down the stretch of the playoffs, put his team on his back against the Utah Jazz in the first round of the uh, playoffs last season, then against the Los Angeles Clippers. Who knows, man? Who knows? So, uh, NBA playoffs, man. Dallas and Phoenix. Juicy, tasty, interesting. Utah versus John Morant. Possibly Memphis. The return of Jaron Jackson Jr. Interesting, tasty. So, we'll see. We will see. We will see. So, yeah, man. Just a lot of things to talk about, man. Just a lot of things. And I haven't got to uh, even talk about LeBron James opening up his mouth again and then deleting a tweet. Come on, man. Come on now. Don't be deleting no tweets and then talk about, well, I don't want to be hatred toward anybody. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. You're LeBron flipping James, man. You keep that shit up there. Strength. Strength, my brother. Someone's some, showing some strength. Leave that tweet up there. Don't worry about it. It doesn't matter what people are going to... Uh, not Photoshop it or whatever, you know, keep it themselves or whatever. All of a sudden, you're going to delete, delete that tweet and everybody's going to forget about what you said. It's not going to be uh, reported. Come on, man. Keep it up there. Own it. Own it. You can do it. So those are some things that are happening in the world of sports. There's a NFL draft talk I still want to get into. There's still some NBA talk that I want to get into. There's still some things that I want to get into. A lot of things that I want to get into. So you know what, man? You know what? I'm going to go to break. Because I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm basically, guys, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. No, no, seriously. I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I'm going to get into it, man. You know, kind of like a, like a, like a, like a, like a sex machine. Yeah. Yeah, like a sex machine. Moving. Doing it, you know. Can I count it off? Can I count it off? Armando, can I count it off? Bradley, can I count it off? Shawnisa, can I count it off? Mattel, can I count it off? Sydney, can I count it off? A one, two, three, four. Get up, get on up. Get up, get on up. Hey, get on up. Get on up. Get up, get on up. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, going to get on the scene, going to stay on the scene like a sex machine, like my man James Brown, I'm going to be getting down, I ain't no clown, 
What you talking about? Got to scream and shout when I talk about sports. Number one, having some fun. When I grab the microphone, you know I get the job done. W-E-N to D-E-L-L. I do it so well. Can't you tell that I'm swell? From Washington, D.C., Silver Spring, M.D., this is me, the skillful MC, talking about what's happening. This is coming off the top of my dome. I'm going to be taking a young lady home. I'm not going to go any further with that nonsense because let me tell you something. I am, okay, that was pretty good. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Speaking about NFL dominates everything, man. Would love to talk about what's going to be happening this weekend with the San Diego Padres and the um, Los Angeles Dodgers. But with my main man, Jeromeo, Mr. MLB always said, hey, man, don't be speaking about shit. The baseball season really doesn't start. Nothing really is falling into place until June, right? Isn't that right, Jeromeo? Isn't that what you always tell me? When the Yankees are starting off slow, the Red Sox are starting off really well, the Dodgers seem to be the best team in baseball, the Athletics have won 11 in a row, all of these things, all of these times, all of these situations, all of these storylines, I want to be speaking about with Jeromeo, but what does he tell me each and every single time? The season's young, no big deal, the season doesn't start till June, even though I keep telling him, I remember that team with the Baltimore Orioles back in the day that had Albert Bell and a couple of other folks and they were supposed to do some things. Brady Anderson, I think Cal Ripken was still on that team and they were supposed to do some things. The acquisition of Albert Bell on that team and by the end of April that team was in complete disarray and had no shot whatsoever to make the playoffs. Their season basically was done by the end of April and there's been other instances where, look, a bad start to the season especially if you're in a league or especially if you're in a division or especially if you're playing the same area code as, you know, the um, the Dodgers like or something like that where, look, man, a bad month, a bad six weeks, your season's over. Your season's done. And I'm not just talking about last season with the uh, 62 games. 162 games, man, you could be out of the thing by Memorial Day. So it's like, now Jeromeo's up there talking about no big deal. We're three weeks into the season, two weeks into the season. Can't think of anything yet. Can't do anything yet. Can't make any prognostications yet. Okay. All right. All right. Teams are going to win. What, what, is, what did he say? Teams are going to, I forgot what he said. There's some, there's some, I'll have him back on the uh, podcast a little bit later on in the, a um, little bit later on in the baseball season. But, uh. Yeah, man, I'm looking forward to the Padres and the Los Angeles Dodgers series. Me watching a little Major League Baseball in April. Say it ain't so. Say it must be a slow Sunday. Going to be a slow Sunday in the National Basketball Association. Or I'm just going to be wanting to have the opportunity to take a look at two of the three or four best teams in the game of baseball. I guess you can say now the most heated rivalry in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I know about the uh, situation with the Yankees and the Red Sox. Whatever, man. I was watching. I'll get back. Hold on. Hold on. Sir. I'll get back to the NFL in just a second. But I was thinking about this last night. I was uh, watching uh, the Sports Century on Joe DiMaggio. And I've been saying this for the longest. I've been saying this since I was in my mid-30s. So we're speaking almost 20 years. You know, the one thing about baseball. Look, there's a lot of great things about the game. There's a lot of things that need to be fixed about the game of baseball. How can we get more black folks into the uh, game? I know Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays are talking about, damn, the NBA's got to take all the brothers and we can't have a couple move over to play baseball, really? Um, So I think that's a situation. I also think the main problem is, man, we got to speed up this doggone game. I mean, there's got to be some type of... 
I've said it before and I'll say it again, man. The laziness, the slow pace and all that kind of stuff, that don't work well in society anymore, man. We're all about, again, we've been this way for a long time. Instant, instant, instant. We are a nation. We are a society. We, a, we are a world of ADHDers. We want it now. We don't want to wait. We are impatient. Now, now, now. Microwave, instantness, Instagram, all this type of stuff. We want it now. So when the pitcher gets the ball back from the catcher, we want him to throw the pitch now. When the batter is in the batter's box, we want him ready to go now. Not in 15 seconds, not in 20 seconds, not in 30 seconds. Now. Get the ball, take a look at the sign, take a deep breath, throw the ball. Batters, stay in the batter's box. This, this leisurely pace that we have right now, you know, maybe for the Tim Kirchens and the Buster Olneys and the Carl Ravages and maybe them folks and the George Wills and other folks, I mean, that might be wonderful and that might be great and that might be awesome. But for the most folks, especially those who aren't diehard baseball fans, who aren't, you know, dying a wolf sports fans, we want it now. If the game could just be speeded up so we don't have these nine-inning, three-hour baseball games, the game itself is awesome. There's nothing wrong with the game itself. We don't need to change ball and strikes. We don't need to change the dynamics of the game. We don't need to change any of the fundamentals of the game. The game itself is a great game. But damn, can we do something to speed the damn thing up? So that's the deal. I can't watch. When's the last time that your son or daughter watched an entire nine-inning baseball game? When was the last time you took your son or daughter to a baseball game and stayed the entire nine innings? I remember years ago, Hoot and Wex, we all went to a uh, baseball game down in uh, Pepco uh, Park. And it was like there was a uh, playground right, right there in the ballpark. And I'm like, what's the playground for? And it's like, well, you know, just in case for the kids, you know, because the kids get restless and they want to uh, go ahead and, you know, do this, that, and the other. They got a playground over there. Well, like, well, wait, wait a second, wait a second, hold on for a second. Get restless and want to do something? How about watch a baseball game? But, but, I understand why they wouldn't because the game is so damn slow for a full-fledged adult to sit there and expect to sit there for two and a half, three hours, not two and a half, but for three hours to watch a nine-inning baseball game. It's too damn slow. It is too damn slow. So baseball needs to, I don't, don't, don't listen to Bob Costas. Don't listen to George Will. Don't listen to Tim Kirchin. Don't listen to, um, don't listen to those guys. Because they're going to sit there and tell you that everything is great. Well, they're not going to tell you that. But they're going to tell you that, no, you know, it's not going to take away and this, that, and the other. And, you know, they're going to tell you that everything is hunky-dory. No, man, this game needs to be sped up. Sped up. So that's the one thing that's like, you know, getting to, uh, you know, the baseball. It's like, man, you know, get, you know, get more brothers in the game and uh, get in universal strike zone. But more importantly than anything, speed the game up because the pace is just too damn slow. Go watch a game, go YouTube a game from the 60s and watch how the pace of the play is. Watch how the, the rhythm of the game is. It's so much better. It's so much better than it is now. And God fucking forbid that you start getting into the 6th and 7th and 8th inning and you bring in these goddamn relievers. 
Can you motherfuckers just throw the fucking ball? Please. Between pitches, it takes so fucking long. You guys only throw two fucking pitches. A splitter and a fastball. What do you take 45 seconds between every pitch to throw a ball? Man. Fundamental change. Look, I understand. Look, you know, the three-point shot in basketball, I can see how it become it becomes annoying when you have NBA teams shooting 40 to 53 pointers a game. I get it. I understand in football where, you know, the running game has become absolutely obsolete for the most part. That we don't have the uh, the great running backs that we used to have. Everybody talks about the, the lack of centers or the dearth of centers in the day's game. And I would conjure back to the good old days of Wilt and Bill Russell and, and um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bob Lanier and Hakeem and David Robinson and Patrick Ewing. And it's like, oh, where's all the great centers gone? This is horrible. This is terrible. Um, same thing could be said about the running back, right? I mean, yeah, you got Derrick Henry, and you've got, um, <clears throat> for a while there, Ezekiel Elliott. you got some others. But, you know, we could easily, if you want to go whining and complaining and moaning about the lack of centers in the NF, in the NBA, we could always then go back and talk about, man, what happened to the Gale Sayers and the Jim Browns and the Walter Paytons and the Eric Dickersons and the Marcus Allens of the world? Man, where are those guys gone? Man, the Emmett Smiths and the Barry Sanders, where are those guys gone? This is terrible. This is horrible. Well, this, the game's changed, man. The game now has an emphasis on passing. So, all of a sudden now, wide receivers and athletic tight ends are more important than a running back who's going to carry the ball 300 times a game, 300 times plus a year. So, I mean, sports just change and sports just change, man. I guess, you know, some of us are more apt to the changes. I wish that the uh, center would be a little bit more in play with the NBA, be have a little bit more importance. I wish that uh, you know we could see a little bit less three-point shooting, unless you're a Stephen Curry or a Damian Lillard type. I mean, I hate the fact that basically you have to be able to shoot a plethora of three-point shots to win basketball games. Just take a look at what the San Antonio Spurs, their lack of three-point shooting when they had LaMarcus Aldridge and, and uh, DeRozan on the team. How <clears throat> they struggled with that. But in the NBA, where <clears throat> you take a look at the old games, <clears throat> you take a look at the games in the 80s and the 90s, and before that, and you take a look at the players and the athletes and the skill level, which is happening today, it's just almost inevitable that, you know what, the, the players are going to outgrow the dimensions of the court. So, look, man, we have Steph Curry who's able to shoot 29, 30-footers. Same thing with Damian Lillard. Same thing with Trey Young to a lesser extent. We have guys now who can shoot, who can shoot with a range. And that's never happened. That's the skill level of the game. And I keep telling people who want to whine and moan and complain about the NBA and this, that, and the other. Look, the NBA is so skilled. Remember back in the 80s where you had... Kurt Rambis be one of the integral parts of the Showtime Lakers. And he was a guy that could, you know, the hustle and the rebounding and the set and screen. He wouldn't be able to play in today's NBA game because he didn't have the skill set to put the ball on the floor. He didn't have the skill set to shoot a jumper. He didn't have the skill set to dribble drive. He didn't have the skill set to play off a pick and roll. He didn't have the skill set to expand his game to the three-point shot. The, the, the those type the Mark Ivoronis 
and the uh, Rick Mahorns and the Kurt Rambuses of the world, they wouldn't fit into today's NBA games. Also, especially someone like a Rick Mahorn, he wouldn't be able to fit in today's NBA game because he would get flagrant two fouls within the first minute and a half of a game. So those guys wouldn't be able to, uh, what, what use do those guys have? They don't have any. So the game has changed in that way. Everybody who's on the court now, for the most part, is a skilled player, has an offensive skill. They can shoot somehow. If you can't shoot, we can't play you. If you can't shoot, you're unplayable. Back in the 80s, that uh, wasn't the case. And now when you have you know, the range and the athletes and the size of these guys, of course it's going to be different than back in the 60s, in the 80s, in the 90s. Take a look at the speed of the game. Take a look at just the, the, the way these guys look back in the 80s. Go YouTube. Boston versus L.A. Magic versus Bird. Go YouTube that. Go YouTube a Chicago Bulls game with Michael Jordan. Go YouTube that. And then take a look at an NBA game today. And you'll see the difference in speed. And you'll see the difference in size. And you'll see the difference in skill level. Now, could Magic and Bird and Isaiah and Mark Aguirre and Bernard King and Jordan and Pippen and Ewing and Barkley and Elijah Wan and all those guys, could those guys play in today's game? Absolutely. Will they be just as great in today's game as they were back in the 80s? Absolutely. In the 90s? Absolutely. No doubt about it. No question about it. But just the surrounding talent, I mean, if those guys were playing in today's game, I mean, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, those guys, I mean, come on, man. They would be, they, they would have to, I mean, they would be much more athletic. They'd be a little bit bigger. I mean, if we're speaking about the evolution of a player, if we're speaking about the evolution of man, I mean, I'm guessing today's Magic Johnson would probably be about seven feet tall, about 265 pounds. I mean, he'd probably be, Probably somewhere around LeBron James. LeBron isn't seven feet tall, but you know, LeBron James is the next generation of Magic Johnson. Luka Dantich is the next generation of Larry Bird. Um, I don't know. I mean, Kobe was maybe the next generation of Michael Jordan. Who's going to be the next uh, generation of Kobe Bryant? I don't know. I don't know. And continuing that geniality of... You know, the, the Jordan tree, which really started with the Elgin Baylor tree. When you went to Elgin Baylor, Connie Hawkins, Julius Irving, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant. Who's next in line? I don't know. Maybe it's a Jalen Green. Maybe it's a, I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, we're speaking about, you know, magic. Magic started off with the, you know, Maurice Stokes. Then it came down to, uh, it jumped a couple and then it went to magic. And now we have a lot of guys who are able to play. LeBron James the next uh, person in that, uh, in that tree from that, uh, as generations move on. But, you know, it's, it's a situation where it's like, look, man, you know, I, I, I love the game of baseball, but man, it has got to get faster. It has got to get better. It has got to speed up. It has got to speed up and it's got to speed up. And I'm wondering if we're taking a look and, you know, this is the country that we're living here in. in so, you know, let's kind of, Keep that in mind. I mean, we're nothing but united. And we are a, we are a country now that seems to hate each other, depending upon um, your political affiliation and depending upon what uh, movements you're behind and those type of things. No one has the ability to listen, to learn, to educate themselves. You want to be stuck in your 
and your thoughts and feelings about things. All right, but my, my deal is going to be when it comes to Major League Baseball and our love of Major League Baseball, this has to be thrown in. I'm not saying that this is the main reason. I'm not saying that uh, something should be done about it. I'm not saying anything about that. But in terms of the game being, I don't know if the game's being hurt. I mean, still making a billion dollars. But uh, in terms of making some inroads, maybe towards football, you know, trying to get back the moniker of, you know, America's pastime. Baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet. Baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet. Baseball is no longer there. Along with hot dogs, because now everybody is talking about either hamburgers or veggie burgers. Apple pie, I don't know, maybe still. But Chevrolet, I prefer Toyotas myself. But football has replaced baseball as far as Americana is concerned. Back in the day, back at the turn of the century, it was about horse racing. It was about boxing. And it was about baseball. Those were the three sports that really, you know, were inundated with the everyday culture of this society. If you're speaking about sports is concerned. We're speaking about at a time in the 19, at the beginning of the uh, 20th century. And then moving on to the 1930s. And then the 1940s. Maybe until the time that Joe Lewis retired. The fact that the most prominent person in sports... And really in society was the heavyweight champion. You equated the heavyweight champion with kings, with rulers, with monarchs, with presidents. I mean, they were right up there. They were the most powerful man on the planet. I mean, hell, Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight champion of the world. I mean, it was so important to white folks and black folks that Jack Johnson either A, keep the championship, or B, lose the championship, that when Jim Jeffries came back from a hiatus or came out of retirement after years and years and years to fight Jack Johnson January 4th, 1910, there was something symbolic about them fighting January 4th. That just wasn't a, oh, how about that? They're fighting January 4th, which happens to be Independence Day. How about that? What a coincidence. No, I mean, that was planned. Because it was a situation where, look, when Jack Johnson won the heavyweight championship from Tommy Burns, he then became the most powerful man in the world. And white folks were like, well, hell fucking no, can we not have something like that? Because if we're speaking about a black man having being the most powerful, being the symbol of the most powerful man on the planet, then all of a sudden, what's that's going to stop from the other Negroes from trying to go ahead and push themselves into a society that we own, that we dominate, and we don't want to be sharing with anybody, especially during that time when you're speaking about black folks were thought of as inferior. Not because of situation, not because of environment, it was just because of the color of their skin. Turning around to the start of the 20th century, moving into 1910 and 1920 and such, yes, black folks were considered inferior just because they were black. So the situation now that Jack Johnson can become the most powerful man in the world by winning the heavyweight championship scared the hell out of white people. You know, it's kind of like finding, it's like Scientologists finding out that, oh shit, you mean this religion right here is absolutely garbage? It's absolutely bunk? It's like Malcolm X finding out that, oh shit, the quote unquote honorable Elijah Muhammad is a fraud, is a criminal is a piece of garbage. Shocking, earth-shattering, but true. 
<laughs> so it's like when white folks found that out, it's like, so wait a minute now. Jack Johnson is the most powerful man on the planet by winning this heavyweight championship. Our thoughts and feelings about black folks being inferior just because they're black? What's up with that? Are we wrong? Is this an anomaly? Is his great, 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 great grandmother for Jack Johnson? Is, did she have some white folks in her? I mean, what the hell is going on? So it just started that movement. So when Jim Jeffries came out of retirement, the last heavyweight champion who retired undefeated, he came out of retirement to fight Jack Johnson July 4th in Reno, Nevada. And he was labeled the Great White Hope. And he got his ass whooped. And he got embarrassed. And he got knocked out after 15 rounds which symbolized the fact that, yeah, Jack Johnson is the most powerful man on the planet and he's here to stay. And the best that the white folks had to offer got his ass whooped in 15 rounds. White folks lost their mind. Black folks lost their mind in jubilation and celebration that, hey, man, guess what? There's some hope. There's a chance. There's an opportunity. There's an avenue that we can start to uh, gain true equality, that we're not inferior. That we're not three-fifths of a man. That we do have some rights. That we do have some opportunities. That we are just as good. Not just as good as the white man, but better than the white man. Thank you, Jack. Thank you for uh, solidifying that thought in my mind. Appreciate it. And thank you for doing it in front of a bunch of white folks who thought the opposite. Thank you. So black folks lost their mind in the celebration of Jack Johnson winning. White folks lost their mind in the fact the reality that, holy shit, the best that we had to offer got his ass whooped. And you're speaking about civil war? You're speaking about destruction? You're speaking about looting? You're speaking about rioting? You're speaking about all of those things that everybody deplores so much about uh, when things go wrong and then, you know, the distant franchise start to uh, burn the things down? You know, we saw that you know, with the, you know, last uh, summer with the uh, Minnesota, up there in Minnesota, up there in Minneapolis. You know, oh, I can't believe these guys are burning things down. What about peaceful protests and this, that, and the other? Well, shit, when Jack Johnson beat Jim Jeffries, July 4th, 1910, white folks lost their mind and started committing crimes against black folks. It was a civil war. White folks turned on and attacked and murdered and lynched black folks Black folks defending themselves had to do what they had to do and kill a couple of white folks, but for the most part, it was a semi-civil war. It was a pseudo-civil war between, it was a race war in that situation because white folks couldn't come to the conclusion, a great number of white folks couldn't come to the conclusion that, oh shit, maybe we, we've been wrong in our thoughts and feelings about this. That's how powerful that's how strong, that's how important, that's how socially impactful being the heavyweight champion was. Now, today, who gives a fuck about Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua? I mean, they're just doing it for sport. And the biggest, the greatest, the strongest, the you know, baddest man on the planet, I mean, that's just a moniker now. And Francis Ngannou is looking and saying, really, Stipe? I mean, instead, Francis Ngannou was sitting there saying, really? Really? You're going to put that on uh, Anthony Joshua, huh? Who just beat the greatest uh, MMA heavyweight of all time? Are you going to give that moniker instead to a boxer? Really? 
So moving it all the way back, yeah, man, I mean, at the turn of the century, I mean, you were speaking about sports and sports stars in general had a huge, huge impact on society. And not only did that go for boxers, heavyweight champions, as I just mentioned before about the example that I gave with Jack Johnson, and then moving on to Joe Lewis and the way that he was used as propaganda, him and Max Schmeling were used as propaganda for uh, their fight. And the winner of that fight would have uh, kind of told the world what country is bigger and better, what ideology is better. I mean, I don't know how you get to that point just based on a sporting event. But at that time, we're speaking about the 1936 uh, era, the 1938 era, right before the beginning of World War I. I mean, that was the deal. That was the situation. That was the importance. That's how important Joe Lewis was. The fact that when he beat Max Schmeling in one round, that there were Jews in, in Auschwitz in concentration camps that were ready to give up and die because of the conditions and because of what they were put in. The only way that they made it, their way of hope, their way of survival, their way of just keeping alive, their way of just saying that there's a chance, their, their, their motivation was knowing that Joe Lewis, a black man from the United States, beat Max Schmeling. And that's my avenue. Because of that, that gave me hope. That gave me inspiration to live. Name me a flipping sports athlete this, this time that can have that type of impact on anybody. <laughs> LeBron James ain't doing that for nobody. For the most part, I'm quite sure. That, for the most part. He's not, he doesn't have that type of impact. Lionel Messi doesn't have that type of impact. Ronaldo doesn't have that impact. Damn. But I'm just saying, you take a look all the way back. And how do I start off on this diatribe? I'm starting off on this diatribe. I got to this diatribe. Stay with me. Hang with me. Pay attention. It's the fact that baseball has been so inundated and so right there with the importance of boxing because you had yourself a Jackie Robinson. You had yourself a Hank Greenberg for the Jewish community. You had yourself a Ty Cobb. You had baseball players. You had a Christy Matthewson, the Christian gentleman. You had these guys who were just so impactful on our society that now you move to today, where are the Hank Aarons? Where are the Willie Mazes? Where are the Ted Williamsons? Where are the Mickey Mantles? Where are the Joe DiMaggio's? Where are the Negro Leaguers? Where are those guys that made a difference in the community? Just not because of charitable things, but just the, because of, of their playing. Because of the game itself. Because baseball was so important to those communities. To those cities. To those states, to those regions. Where, where is that today? What's happening with that today? And it all goes back to, you know what? Hmm. How am I going to say this correctly? I'm going to go ahead and say it. The, the, in, the inclusion of baseball players from not only all over the world, but in particular, Latin American countries, the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, those areas, has the superstars from those countries taken away from baseball. Yeah, you had, you know, the, the, 
The integration of baseball, as far as the Latino ball player is concerned, I mean, really didn't start happening far after the integration of black folks. I mean, I don't know if you want to call Roberto Clemente. You see how I try to be a little Latino there? Roberto Clemente. But uh, Roberto Clemente, I, I don't know if you want to call him the black Jackie Robinson or the uh, the uh, Latino black uh, Jackie Robinson, but he was right there in terms of the importance you know, the Juan Marichals and, and, and those guys, I mean, those guys started to, uh, those guys were the foundation for what we see today. And we see a lot of these guys coming in, they don't speak English, darker skin, don't live in this country for the most part. I mean, when they're done, they go back to their their home uh, home countries. I'm not saying that, I don't know, I don't, that, this is the reason why I'm bringing it out. Do you think that, I mean, this is a situation that's hurt the game? The game of baseball. One of the, one of the reasons why it's no longer America's sport. Because you don't see too many folks who weren't born in America playing football. For the most part, you got black folks, you got white folks playing football. Not too many Asians, not too many Hispanics. Not too many folks who are from Lithuania. Not too many folks from other European countries. Not folks from uh, African uh, countries. Not folks coming from Canada. Not folks coming from Australia for the most part. I mean, we can name a superstar in every sport. Baseball, basketball, hockey. The other four, the other three main sports in this country as far as leagues are concerned. We can name ourselves a a superstar of other background, as far as another country is concerned. I mean, the NBA is just filled with them. I mean, when, when's the next time uh, Americans? <laughs> when's the next time Americans going to win the MVP award? Right? <laughs> I mean, it's been a while. I mean, with with Giannis and with Luca. I mean, you know, we might be looking at Jokic. is still young. We might be looking at a long drought before the game that we dominate basketball have themselves a player. From this country that's considered the best player in the game. <laughs> so, I mean, with Jokic, with Luka, with Giannis and those guys. Hey, man, it, we, we might be looking at, I don't know, 2026, 2027. I mean, we, we might we might be talking about, hey, you know what? Jalen Green in the year 2028 had the real shot of winning the MVP. That will be the first American-born player to win the MVP since. I mean, you know, it's going to be one of them deals. Since 19, what, since 20. 18, 2017, some nonsense like that. So, you know, we know the influx. We know the impact. We know um, the uh, what the um, non-American players have done for the NBA, and it's great. I think it's awesome. I think it's wonderful. Joe English, way to go from Australia. You know, awesome. Luca, way to go. Keep doing what you're doing, man. You know, keep keep them going. Keep it going. I love it. Absolutely love it. Let's get uh, players doing great from all countries. From all walks of life, from all parts of the globe, wonderful, love it. Um, you know, hockey, of course. I mean, you've got players from all over the, the world playing in the NHL. A lot of folks from Canada, a eh, playing in the NHL. You have uh, baseball. Now, I, I think that uh, if you had an all-star game where you had uh, Latin America versus the USA, I mean, that would be awesome. I might even get into that. Because A, I think those guys would try harder. A, I think the Latino ball players would really try to play hard and would really want to win the game, which in turn would cause the American ball player to be like, yeah, we want to win this game. 
So I think as far as an all-star game where we always whine and complain about, you know, it's not spunky and funky and and competitive enough, I think if you put that into play, Latino versus uh, American, I think that would be quite tasty in terms of the competitive level is concerned. But I'm just... I'm just going back to thinking, man, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know what the impact in terms of the game itself, the popularity itself has in terms of when you have the two, you know, when you have Ronald Acuna Jr. who's playing out of his mind, but you can't do an interview with him because he doesn't speak English unless he has an interpreter with him. I don't know. You know, Shohei Otani. I mean, this guy's a marvel. Pitching, hitting. I mean, his pitching's been a little bit off, and he's, you know, but still, I mean, we have a guy here who, I mean, pitching, hitting, doing that thing. But you can't interview the guy because he doesn't speak English. And when this season's over, he's going back to Japan. Same thing with uh, Ichiro. I mean, had you ever heard Ichiro say anything? No, because for the longest, he didn't learn English. Why? Because he played in Seattle, which has a pretty strong Asian uh, population, so he can blend in that way. And when the season was over, he's going back to uh, Japan to uh, do a thing. Which, I'm not sitting there saying that's horrible and that's terrible because if I was in this situation, I'd do the same thing. Look, man, if I was a basketball player and I was playing over in Italy and I was playing over in Brazil and if I was playing over into another country where they didn't speak the, speak the language, I'm not learning the language. I'm not going to learn Mandarin. I'm not learning uh, Chinese or whatever. I'm not learning that language. I'm not learning Portuguese. I'm not learning uh, the, the language over there. I'm going over there playing basketball, find enough people who know English to keep me going, collect my paycheck, and then once the season's over, I'm going. I'm over here, I'm going to go back to, uh, I'm going to go back to Maryland and uh, live in Olney. So I, I'm, I don't blame these guys. People were always talking about how horrible Julio Cesar Chavez was because he never learned the, the uh, he never learned how to speak English, and he was one of the, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest boxers of his time. Why should he? He lived in Culiacan. I mean, his allegiance was with with the uh, folks in Mexico. Why would he have to learn uh, English? He comes over here, he knocks somebody out, he wins his titles, and then he goes back over to Mexico. Why in the world is he going to uh, want to become fluent in English? Well, because of dollars and this, that, and the other. He's got enough money. Obviously, he's got enough money if he feels like he doesn't want to learn English. So, you know, bingo bongo. So I, I, I just, I don't know. I, I just feel that, uh, you know, the, the game of baseball itself is hurt when you have the best players out there and they can't speak English and they're not part of the, the, the fabric of America 12 months out of the year. They play from spring training to the end of the season and then they're gone. They're out of there. They have no allegiance to this country. I mean, we speak about, you know, why can't Major League Baseball players speak out on some of the atrocities that are happening to black and brown folks in this country? It's because they're not really into this country. And I don't know how they can be like, you know, super, you know, into it and this, that, and the other. It's like, look, man, I, you know, I don't, I don't live here. I mean, what happened to George Floyd? Sucks. Horrible. What's going on with black folks in this country? Sucks. Horrible. I hope you change. But, um, you know, in a couple of months, I'm out of here. I'm going to, you know, and I've got $15, $20 million coming my way. And I'm going to go back to my country and I'm going to do my thing. And then I'm not going to be coming over to America until spring training happens. So. See you later. Good luck to y'all. Hope you do well, but I'm out of here. And when my playing days are over, I'm going to go back to Nicaragua. I'm going to go back to uh, Puerto Rico. I'm going to go back to uh, San Juan. And uh, that's it. See you later. <laughs> I'm done. You know, so, you know, 
you know, good luck to you guys. I hope everything works out, but whatever. So I think in turn that hurts baseball in itself when you have NBA guys marching for the rights and civil rights and such and NFL guys and this and the other and baseball's like, you know, what can you do? So I think the game is great. Again, I think the great game is great. I think the game is awesome and all those things, but, uh, you know, just, just freestyling here and just thinking about it here. I mean, you know, there's, there's still a long way to go as far as what baseball can do. And, you know, you can point out the, hey, you know what, this is great and this is awesome and, you know, viewing TV, viewership is up and all that type of stuff. I'm not saying the game is in trouble. I'm not saying the game is going to be extinct. I'm not saying that the game is going to be ending. But what can we do to continue to grow the game? What can we do to make the game better? That should never be something that any sport, any business should uh, abdicate in terms of uh, trying to improve the game, even if it's perfect. If it's perfect, how can we improve on perfect? The game is far from perfect, but what I'm saying. So those are just some things just throwing out, just thinking about, just throwing it out there to you. Baseball, it's a good game, strong game, but uh, let's see what we can do to uh, make it better. Some things, pitch count or, you know, uh, Pitch count and, and batter's box and all this kind of nonsense. Can't do anything about that. The the dimensions of the game. No need to mess with anything like that. Pitch clock, hit clock, whatever. That could be needed. The cultural aspect of the game. Don't think, don't need to be touching that. It might hurt the game a little bit, but for the most part, inclusion of all can only be a good thing. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Namaste. Shalom. Wassalam alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Namaste. Konnichiwa. Wendell's World in Sports. Bonjour. Bonsoir, monsieur. Mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. What's happening? Que pasa, mi amigos? Mi amo y Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us was taking a look, thinking about what I was mentioning before. I just love bringing up the, uh, I'm just a historian when it comes to uh, sports, along with uh, along with America. I just really, really enjoy it. I can watch on the Revolution. I have that, uh, man, that's one of the other things I might watch this weekend in terms of bin watching. I've watched the Presidents, the History Channel, where they had that stuff about the presidents, and then they uh, had the stuff about the revolution. I probably watched that, oh, I don't know, about 100 times each for some reason, even though I've watched those episodes many, many, many times. I, A, still have the joy of watching it like I did the first time, and B, I always learn something. 
when I watch that. So when I watch the presidents, I've watched the ones about from George Washington all the way up to to uh, Kennedy. I don't know, countless, countless of times. So I don't know, man. I'm just, uh, I just love history, man. I just love learning about history from all sides, and including sports. So when I'm talking about Jack Johnson, and I'm talking about Jim Jeanette, and I'm talking about Jack Dempsey, and I'm talking about uh, Jesse Owens, and I'm talking about those people in the context of the sporting world having an impact on the regular world, on society. I've said it before, and I've said it again, and I'll say it again, and I'll keep saying it again. I think that uh, for some reason, athletes, along with entertainers, do not get the respect that they deserve in historical terms. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again, and I'll continue to say it again. And if I would ever get an opportunity to teach it, I would. I think that um, when you have people like Jack Johnson and Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis and Jackie Robinson and Larry Dolby and Babe Dickerson Zaharias and Martina Navratilova and Billie Jean King and Althea Gibson and um, yeah, LeBron James and Colin Kaepernick and Muhammad Ali and Oscar Robertson and Jim Brown and Bill Russell and these guys, these guys should be along with the rest of the historical figures that we learn about in the high schools, that we learned about in the middle schools. They should be spoken. They should be talked about. They should be given assignments on, just like every other historical person that we learn when we're growing up in high school, in middle school, in elementary school, concerning history is concerned. I feel that, you know, when you're speaking about Muhammad Ali, when you're speaking about Joe Lewis, when you're speaking about Jack Johnson, when you're speaking about Jesse Owens, when you're speaking about Jackie Robinson, when you're speaking about Jim Brown, they are all in the same arena. They are all in the same area code. They are all of the same importance, yes, as Martin Luther King Jr., as Medgar Evers, as Malcolm X. Yes, Sam Cooke, Yes, Otis Redding. Yes, James Brown, too. I mm, I don't know what to think about James Brown. In the later part, the last segment of my podcast, I'm going to have a story about how James Brown damn near killed seven people, damn near shot seven people. For those who think that beef amongst artists started with hip-hop and started with Biggie and Tupunk, nip, nip, a lot of this stuff has been going on long before... Those days, remember when Tupunk was killed and then Biggie got killed and everybody was talking about, man, well, hip-hop, man, this is going off the rails here. I mean, you know, something needs to stop here. I mean, we're killing each other and this is terrible and this is horrible. And then, of course, the media, who don't know anything about the culture, who don't know anything about the, uh, who didn't know anything about the uh, the art itself and the, the environment and the community, they all piled in and started talking about, oh my goodness gracious, you know, artists getting killed by each other and artists are getting murdered and, you know, and, and hip hop. And this is what happens when you have filthy lyrics and when you have a, lyrics about violence. And for some reason, these idiots thought, thought that this was something new, that, you know, rock and roll and all this other stuff, you know, true rock and roll, white man's rock and roll, watered down rock and roll, country music, all this type of shit. Everything was hunky-dory and everything was wonderful and everything was euphoric and nothing of that nature ever took place until this culture from the ghetto came along 
And they started talking about shit bitches and niggas and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, we're going to be doing this and we're going to treat women like shit and all this kind of stuff. And then that led to the culture killing these artists. Oh, my goodness gracious. Hip-hop is just a stain on our society and all this bullshit. And it's kind of like, wow, y'all really didn't do your homework or y'all have no historical perspective about what came before when we were speaking about artists having beefs and doing this to each other and this, that, and the other. As I mentioned before, the last segment of my program, I'm going to uh, tell a story about how James Brown damn near killed seven people. Or, I'm sorry, tried to kill one person and shooting at him hurt seven. And James Brown has a statue. If you go, James Brown is, is glorified. He's deified. And he has a statue. He's thought of as an American hero. And I take a look at the life of James Brown, and there's a lot of articles about how weird and wacky and cruel and abusive and just what a bad guy James Brown is. And it's like, damn, man, really? We're, uh, we're going to build a statue for him, huh? Musical-wise, can't take anything from him. And the impact that he had for, through his music, can't take, any way, can't take that from him. But how do we equate that with all the other stuff that he did? I mean, he beat the living shit out of Tammy Terrell. Beat the living shit out. You think David Ruffin did a number on Tammy Terrell as far as physical abuse? Shit. That, was, that wasn't even a, a co-main event when it came to the absolute brutality that James Brown admittedly inflicted upon Tammy Terrell. And this is who we have a statue of in some places? And we're going to vilify, and we're going to take down, and we're going to crucify R. Kelly, which we should. How are we then going to glorify James Brown? I don't know. I just played Sex Machine in the first segment. So that's where I'm at. That's the confusion I have. Love is music, but the guy himself. And I don't know. I, and, you know, we can speak about times and all that. Well, you know, he came from a different time in his upbringing. Do we ever, I, I don't allow that bullshit when it comes to anybody else. I mean, you could make that bullshit for, isn't, isn't that the thing when we talk about people who commit crimes? Isn't that the way when we talk about rapists? Isn't that the thing that we bring up as far as defense attorneys are concerned when we speak about people who commit violent acts toward other people? Well, you know, growing up, his father was an alcoholic and mother was never around. He was abused as a kid. So somehow, someway, we should mitigate the pain and suffering that this person inflicted upon someone. No, fuck no. No, fuck no. A lot of people grow up in abusive homes. A lot of people grow up in bad situations. It doesn't mean they go out and start murdering co-eds. It doesn't mean that they start murdering prostitutes. It doesn't mean that they start murdering young boys and burying them in a crawl space. It doesn't mean that they go around the Pacific Northwest and start murdering uh, uh, young folks in college co-eds. No, no, no. So if I'm going to have that same attitude, if I'm going to have that same passion, if I'm going to have that same fever toward the non-defense for those who do those things, then I can't sit there and be like, well, James Brown deserves a statue. Because I'm quite sure there's those who, who are related to Tammy Terrell who would say, really? Really? The man beat the woman with a hammer. Really? That's the guy who he won a statue of? Why? Because he made get up and get up and get down. 911 is joking. Your town That's public enemy. Because he made uh, say it loud. I'm black, black and I'm proud. Why? Because he said sex machine. Why? Because he was talking about getting on the good foot. I don't know. Read on James Brown. Just Google James Brown crazy. And uh, <clears throat> a lot of interesting stuff. And like I said, I'm, I'm at a conundrum about 
I don't know, man. How should I like celebrate James Brown in terms of music? Awesome contributions. I mean, he did some good, but not a good guy. Not a really not a good guy at all. The Godfather of Soul. Mm. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Have I mentioned before that the draft is happening? <laughs> Less than a week away. Of course, there's a possibility of the first four picks in the draft could be quarterbacks. Lawrence, Wilson, Jones, Fields, Lance. Could be. The first two are expected to be no-brainers, right? And you're speaking about Jacksonville selecting quarterback Trevor Lawrence. He's supposed to be the best quarterback prospect since Andrew Luck. Had the talent to become a generational great, future Hall of Famer, right up there as far as the VIP sections of greatest quarterbacks who's ever played. That's his potential. That's his talent. Those are some expectations which has been lassoed, corralled, shackled to Mr. Lawrence. Well, not everyone agrees with those sentiments. NFL.com analysis, Tom Pelleriso, I don't know, released his annual feature of anonymous NFL executive scouts and coaches breaking down the current quarterback class. He says several sources in the league weren't convinced that he's as good as the hype might indicate. Here's what an NFL, NFC coordinator told Pelissero. His name is Pelissero, sorry. He said, Trevor Lawrence is a really good player. I don't know if he's a generational talent like people are are saying. And then another AFC coach said if he was selecting between Joe Burrow and Trevor Lawrence, Joe Burrow was the number one pick of the Cincinnati Bengals last season, the number one pick in the 2020 NFL draft. This AFC coach said he would, it would be obvious that he would pick Burrow over Lawrence 100 out of 100. 100 times out of 100. He says, if you don't take him out of, if you don't take him, if you don't take him in your Jacksonville and it turns out that he was a perennial pro bowler, you'll never live it down. But I, but they have to take him. I think the intangibles are there. He can throw the ball, but he does not have unique, rare playmaking ability. If I'm comparing last year to this year, Joe Burrow is picked over Trevor Lawrence 100 times out of 100. One AFC quarterback coach said he would take BYU's Zach Wilson over Trevor Lawrence, saying, if I was picking number one, who man, that I'd be hard for me not to take him over Trevor. Uh, he's not he's got real playmaking ability. He's shorter than Lawrence. I get it, but he's got ball all about him. He makes plays, unique plays. I don't know what that means though. It's like, okay, no one said that he's gonna be a bust. No one said that, I don't know about this guy, man. You know, I mean, this guy might not have this. He might not have that. I'm saying that he might be a guy where we're looking at a Jameis Winston type. We're looking at a Marcus Mariota type where, you know, by his fifth or sixth year, he might be on another team because he just didn't live up to expectations. No one is saying that. Everyone is saying that, well, you know, he might not be the generational all-time great that many people are predicting him to be. All right, all right, fine. That doesn't mean that he's going to be a bust, though. I mean, I I think that he should be drafted number one. I'm not an NFL scout. But, you know, the fact that people are saying, well, he's going to be very good, but not an all-time great. Hmm, I mean, does that mean, uh, that still means, if, if Trevor Lawrence is going to be very good, is are we talking about Donovan, Donovan McNabb very good? 
I mean, what type of are we very good are we talking about here? Depends upon your definition. If he's Donovan McNabb good, who I think McNabb is a, I don't think he's a Hall of Famer. He's really close. He's like, he's kind of like, that. if he was baseball, he would be like a 4A. You know how Triple A, he's, he's, he's too good for Triple A, but he's not good enough to uh, be in the major leagues. I think that's what it is with Donovan McNabb concerning the, the, the Hall of Fame. I think that he's really good. I think that he's super good. But I just don't think that he's Hall of Fame. I think he comes close. But he's just not Hall of Fame. He's like Jim Marshall of the Minnesota Vikings. Yeah, he's had some Pro Bowls, and yeah, he's had some good moments, and yeah, you know, playing for 20 years and never missing a game. All of that's great. But I just don't think that he's at a level where the ultimate is the Hall of Fame. That was the argument of the longest time with Ken Stabler. Ken Stabler won a Super Bowl. Ken Stabler was a top quarterback during his generation for years. So if we're speaking about Trevor Lawrence, if we're speaking about him maybe being overrated because of the hype that's being cast upon him, okay, if he's not going to be an all-time great, if he's not going to be a generational talent, if he's not going to be a surefire Hall of Famer, maybe he's just going to be really, really good. And we've seen throughout history that really, really good quarterbacks can win Super Bowls, depending upon the organization, depending upon the players around them, depending upon the coaching staff. I mean, hell, didn't the San Francisco 49ers come really close to winning a Super Bowl just one year ago or two years ago with Jimmy Garoppolo as their quarterback? Yeah, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers won a Super Bowl this past season. And yeah, Tom Brady is one of the greatest, if not the greatest quarterback who's ever played the game of one of the greatest football players who's ever played the game. But the 43-year-old Tom Brady that was on the field for that Super Bowl, that Tom Brady... At 43 years old, that wasn't one of the all-time greats. I mean, this wasn't a 28, 31, 35-year-old Tom Brady. This was a 43-year-old Tom Brady who had to rely on a running game, who had to rely on a defensive line, who had to rely on a brilliant coaching performance by the defensive coordinator, Todd Bowles, to get the job done, a balance on offense. This wasn't Tom Brady putting a team on his back like he had in years past, and uh, at least offensively and winning a Super Bowl for him. This wasn't the situation where they were down 28-3 to and Tom said, okay, time for me to be doing Tom Brady-type things. This was a complete team effort by the 49ers, excuse me, by the uh, Buccaneers to win that Super Bowl. So if Trevor Lawrence is going to be very, very good, and somehow, someway, once Urban Meyer bombs, just kidding, but, you know, maybe year five, six, seven of his career, four, five, six, seven of his career when Jacksonville has accumulated enough talent to put around Lawrence to compete for a championship. Maybe Lawrence will be that guy that can win a Super Bowl without him being Aaron Rodgers-like, without him being Tom Brady in his prime-like, without him being Patrick Mahomes-ish in terms of his ability and in terms of his responsibility on the football team. Maybe they'll have a strong enough defense to where Lawrence could be very good and win a Super Bowl. Maybe he'll have a running game where he can be very good and win a Super Bowl. It's happened. It's happened before. So I don't know if that's a diss. I don't know even what to make of it when you have these scouts coming out and talk about, oh, you know, uh, he's not a generational talent. I would pick Joe Burrow 100 times over 100 over Lawrence and, you know, all this other stuff. And I, to me, it's all about what's your definition of him being a bust? What's his definition of him being overrated? Because we heard, we hear the word overrated, and all of a sudden we go straight to the negative. We go straight to the, you know, 
well, Trevor Lawrence is overrated. Oh, that means he's going to be a bust. No, no. That means with the expectation placed upon him, he's not going to be able to reach those expectations. But if those, if he meets 80% of those expectations, then in theory, in definition, yeah, he was overrated because he didn't reach 100%, but he was far from being a bust because he reached 80% of those uh, of that potential, which meant that uh, he had a very successful career. So read into it, whatever, however you want to do it. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Mentioned before in the first segment, long time ago, long, long time ago, the Jets, the New York Jets, selecting Zach Wilson. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Why, why is it that we've had, okay, we've, I've, Mentioned before, I just read to you about some AFC coordinators. And what coordinators are we talking about? Are we talking about an offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, linebacking coach, quarterback coach? I mean, again, context. But, okay, we've had these guys come out. Well, Trevor Lawrence, he's not going to be the generational great. He might not be the generational great. Joe Burrow, uh, 100 times over 100 being drafted over Trevor Lawrence. He doesn't have the arm talent that Zach Wilson has, blah, blah, blah. We hear Trey Lance. Well, you know, he's got that elongated type of throwing motion. He played at North Dakota State. He only played 16 games. He missed the entire season last season, but for one bullshit exhibition game because of COVID. And he's coming from the lower level as far as football uh, playing experience and all that stuff is concerned. He's not NFL ready-made just yet. It's going to take some time. So we've heard that about Trey Lawrence. Justin Fields is all over the fucking place. Whether it's uh, he's the last one in, first one to leave. We don't know about his dedication and his passion toward the game. We don't know about his work ethic. He had two bad games this past season. So because of that, obviously, he might not be as good as we thought he was. He's coming from the same system that Ryan Day used to make uh, Dwayne Haskins put up huge numbers at Ohio State. And the Washington Snyder skins were duped in the picking him because of that. So I mean, a whole lot of negatives, a whole lot of red flags, a whole lot of question marks concerning Justin Fields. So we've heard some negatives and we've heard some, uh, some, some, some negative stuff com- uh, when it comes to Lawrence, Lance, and Fields. Where is Zach Wilson's we don't knows? Where are Zach Wilson's red flags? Where are Zach Wilson's don't know if the Jets... Now, Mel Kuyper's come out and said some stuff, Shane, all those type of guys, but... It's not getting the same type of traction. And I don't know how much, how much the story of folks doubting the expectations of Trevor Lawrence. I don't know how much, I don't know how loud those, uh, those uh, words are. I don't know how much noise that's making. But where is the, where is the segment on SportsCenter about, is Zach Wilson really that guy to be drafted at number two? Where is the segment on the Shannon and Skip show talking about that. On the TV show with Mike Greenberg, where is the conversation about that? Maybe there has been. Maybe there has been. I don't know. I don't know. I don't watch the uh, Mike Greenberg show. Or I, I don't watch Shannon and Skip. and I don't watch Nick Wright. And I definitely don't watch Stephen A. and Max. So maybe they have broken down. And maybe, you know, Dominic Foxworthy and and uh, Dan Orlowski and those guys have gone on and talked about some of the flaws, talked about some of the question marks, talked about some of the... Um, Talks about some of the risks that the New York Jets are taking in selecting Zach Wilson. Maybe they haven't. I haven't been paying attention. I don't know. 
But it just seems to me that, man, he's sort of kind of a little bit getting a pass on this. Because we speak about the small sample section concerning Trey Lance. And we speak about, well, you know, Mac Jones basically having one good season, playing with uber talent surrounding him at the skill positions. Well, where, where has been the resume of Zach Wilson where he's put up consistent numbers? Before the 2020 season, Wilson had just seven games with at least 20 completions. Those in the, two, in the previous two seasons combined. So we're speaking about his freshman and sophomore year, seven games with at least 20 uh, completions combined over two seasons. He's had 23 career touchdown passes coming into the 2020 season. I mean, what, what's happening here? Coming into the a season, last season for Wilson, some in the league saw him as a late-day number two or number three prospect. I mentioned Matt Jones when talking about Joe Burrow. I should maybe also include, I should have included, Zach Wilson. And he's zooming up the charts, and he's now number two because of comparison to Patrick Mahomes in terms of arm talent, because he can make some throws similar to Patrick Mahomes. What? What? And basically, it's like, well, you know, you don't want to be that guy. Remember when the, I know you don't remember, so let me remind you. I remember when the Dallas Mavericks selected Dirk Nowitzki. And after four or five years, when Nowitzki finally got it clicked in, and he was really doing some work and this, that, and the other, teams got scared. So teams went on just a deluge of drafting international players. Anybody who was from a European country who was seven feet tall, who could walk and chew gum at the same time were being drafted high because that franchise didn't want to be the franchise that was known to have drafted, who had passed on the next Dirk Nowitzki. So the Denver Nuggets went out and drafted Nicholas Skelis Vili and a couple of other guys who were seven feet tall and the Detroit Pistons went out and drafted Darko Amir, uh, uh, um, Darko, uh, I forgot his last name. He's doing MMA fighting now. But uh, Darko, that's all I know him as. They started drafting all of these guys who were seven feet tall. And he could shoot. And he can dribble. And he had agility. And he had perimeter game. Because all of these teams were scared that they were going to be passing up on the next Dirk Nowitzki. But guess what? There's only one Dirk Nowitzki. Which is why he's one of the best 25 players who's ever played the game. And probably the best... European player that the NBA has ever seen. Maybe him and Manu Ginobili. Those guys don't come around every so often. Those are once-in-a-generational type players. So Patrick Mahomes is a once-in-a-generational type player. So these guys who are taking a look at Zach Wilson and they're saying, hey, you know, against Coastal Carolina and Central Florida, we saw Zach Wilson throw a pass that was similar to what Patrick Mahomes threw Wow, well, we can't pass up on that because, hell, if this guy comes out and has the same type of impact that Patrick Mahomes has, A, I'm going to get fired, and B, I'm going to look like a fool. C, my resume is going to have to include that, which is going to prevent me from getting possible jobs, and D, I'm going to look like a fool, and the organization is going to look like a fool. So I've got to go ahead and I've got to draft this guy because in a game against Army, I saw Zach Wilson throw a pass that resembled something similar to Patrick Mahomes. Come on, man. That don't make no fucking sense. I haven't been out on the road. I haven't spent decades looking at film. I haven't been out there for live, live throwing sessions. So you guys know more about this than I do. But, man, it seems to me that it's kind of like, you know, Patrick Mahomes 
That's a guy that comes along once every 30 years, 20 years. Not once every five or six years. And even if you're getting, like, even if the argument is, okay, we might not be getting Patrick Mahomes, but we're getting Patrick Mahomes-like. Well, there's more to Patrick Mahomes than just the unbelievable arm talent that he has. He's also a great leader. He's also very intelligent. He's also a hard worker. He also has good size for the position. He, he has that trait of leadership and accountability that, uh, you know, that's rare. He's a superstar quarterback, just not because of his talent, but also because of his intelligence and because of his character. So, hell, there's been a lot of clowns with uh, great arm talent. I mean, Jeff George might have had the greatest arm talent of them all. But upstairs, he was a mental midget during that time, during his playing career. I don't know what he's like now. But at least when he was with the Falcons and he was yelling and screaming at June Jones and when he was at, with Indianapolis and nobody liked him and all those type of things, I mean, he was, a, he was an immature ass clown. So, okay, I'm, I'm, and I'm not saying that Zach Wilson is Ryan Leaf. I'm not saying that Zach Wilson mentally is Jeff George or Johnny Manziel or any of those guys. But, you know, I, you got to get a little, you got to give me a little bit more than Wow, he has arm talent similar to Patrick Mahomes. What's his leadership qualities are like? What is his background like? How does he take the coaching? How will a guy from, I don't know where he's from, but he played football in Utah for three years. How is he going to relate playing in New York? How is he going to relate playing with a dysfunctional franchise like the New York Jets? How is he going to uh, play? How is his, How strong is his mentals? How strong is his moral fiber and character knowing that if he does start week one against the New York Jets, Jets, that he's going to get the shit kicked out of him on a couple of times because you're going to be going up against a Bill Belichick-led defense. You're going to be going up against a Brian Flores-type defense. How strong is his moral fiber and his character when in week six or week seven, you're going to have clowns up there talking about, well, did you make a mistake by drafting Zach Wilson, if the Jets are sitting there two and five or one and six, we don't know. We don't know these things. So, and, and these guys know this. These organizations know this. These folks who are a football operations guy, they know this. So maybe they've done their homework. Maybe they've done their due diligence. In fact, I know, I don't know for a fact, but I'm going to go on the assumption that these guys, the Jets organization, they have done their due diligence and they have talked to teammates and they have talked to, uh, uh, Zach Wilson's high school English teacher and math teacher and PE teacher and guidance counselor. I'm quite sure that they've talked to, hell, his elementary school teachers. I'm quite sure that they've done backgrounds when he was at BYU and other places. So I'm quite sure they have turned over every rock and every stone and every pebble to uh, find out the information to feel comfortable enough for someone who is not from a Power 5 conference, someone who didn't play in the SEC, someone who wasn't playing for national championships, someone who did play the competition level that BYU had. They did do their homework to go ahead and feel comfortable in making the selection. Who am I to say is a bad mistake? I don't know. I haven't done the homework. I haven't done the due diligence of finding out about this guy. I haven't watched any of the film. I haven't done any of those things to say that the Jets are making a huge, huge mistake and they shouldn't do it. I don't know. Those guys know more about this than I do, so go for it. Go for it and make the uh, decision. But I, I just think that, um, uh, you know, I, I feel that you're, you're downgrading Trey Lance. You're throwing up some question marks concerning 
Mac Jones, with with understanding. I get it. I'm not saying that you're wrong in doing that, but why not a little bit more with Zach Wilson? That's all, and I don't know. Maybe maybe some organizations have. I don't know. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So Zach Wilson being drafted by the New York Jets going into the season. Many people said, you know what? It's going to be Trevor Lawrence, number one, and it's going to be Justin Fields, number two. And while I've always said that the biggest prize in the NFL moving forward is A, winning the Super Bowl, and B, being in the position to draft Trevor Lawrence, everything else is far, far, far down the list. I thought that if a team finished with the second worst record in the league and had the number two pick in the draft, that getting Justin Fields would be a pretty good complimentary. I mean, would be a good constellation prize. Um, boy, was I wrong on that one. I have, I have no idea what's going on with Justin Fields. And when we're speaking about the inexperience with Mahomes, excuse me, with um, Mac Jones and um, Zach Wilson, well, I mean, Justin Fields is more proven than any of the quarterback prospects except for Trevor Lawrence. Take a look at the man's resume. I mean, in his two seasons at Ohio State, I mean, the first season there, a sophomore year, he finished with 3,200 passing yards, 41 touchdowns, only three interceptions to go along with 484 yards rushing, and 10 touchdowns. Was named the Big Ten Player of the Year. And his junior year, shortened season, he finished with um, 2,100 passing yards, 22 touchdowns, and six interceptions. 383 yards rushing, five touchdown passes, or five touchdowns rushing on the ground. And again, with the Big Ten Player of the Year. What's going on here? What's happening here? He led Ohio State to a pair of Big Ten titles in the college football national championship game. What's going on here? Does anybody remember what he did against Clemson? Over 350-yard passing, six touchdowns. Threw about three or four of those touchdowns after getting destroyed on a hit by a uh, Clemson linebacker. Fought through the pain. Fought through the adversity. They had probably his best game in his college football career. I mean, you'd think that game alone would have launched him into solidifying the number two or number three spot. But it did nothing. It's amazing. It's amazing. In his two years at Ohio State, he's had two bad games. Two bad games against Indiana, Indiana and Northwestern. He threw three interceptions, pretty bad too. The two interceptions were just horrendous against Indiana. But he still threw for 300 yards, two touchdowns against Northwestern in the Big Ten championship game. Okay, he was 12 for 27 for 114 yards, two interceptions, no touchdowns. Okay, okay, I get it. I understood that the only reason why they won or one of the main reasons why they won was because Trey, Trey Sermon ran for 331 yards on 29 carries and two touchdowns was the foundation, was the man who put the Ohio State offense on his shoulders on his back and then led him to that championship so we're going to really concentrate on that Trevor Lawrence his sophomore year against Wake Forest and a couple of others he didn't have multiple interception games Mac Jones again I mean he only played one year he only played 14-15 games oh I'm sorry in his junior year against was it Auburn his junior year when Tua got injured I believe it was against Mississippi 
And then in the uh, Iron Bowl against Auburn, didn't Mac Jones throw a couple of interceptions, one that would return 90-something yards for a touchdown? So why aren't we holding that against Mac Jones? Why aren't we holding up holding the interception bad games that Trevor Lawrence had in this sophomore season? I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I, I really don't get it. Two games. Two games. And that's what we're harping on with Justin Fields? Those two bad games? Now, how much of it here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, I'm your host, Wendell Walls, how much of Fields having epilepsy plays a role in this? Diagnosed as a youth, Fields has seen his symptoms get shorter and less frequent over time. He doesn't have seizures as long as he takes his medication. That's, that's according to a source. And the source also says that because uh, that uh, teams became aware during the pre-draft process that Fields manages epilepsy, but it hasn't affected his football career, and doctors are confident he'll grow out of it as other family members have. So during his time when he was playing high school ball down in Georgia, his freshman year at Georgia, and his two seasons at Ohio State, we've never heard of this. We've never had any evidence of this. An episode has never happened. I don't know. Doing the homework. Has this ever happened during a meeting? Has this ever happened during a pregame? Has this ever happened any other time? Him having a seizure or something like that. Under medication. Doctors are saying that this should be manageable. It is manageable. And there's evidence that it is manageable. Because again, we didn't know anything about this. NFL team, for the most part, didn't know anything about this. From what we can gather. So this isn't a situation where Fields, number two pick, number three pick. Oh my goodness, he has epilepsy. Let's drop him all the way down. That's not the situation with this at all. So I don't know. Where most where most of mock drafts have them, they have anywhere from number three. I've seen CBS Sports and I've seen a couple of others talk about San Francisco's going to draft them. Uh, I've seen some others. The NFL Network, I believe, has Fields being drafted number four to Atlanta. And there's a situation where he could be drafted number nine with Denver. But it's... Interesting to think that, again, moving all the way back up to Zach Wilson, none of the things that have hampered, that have uh, put a dent or raised a flag concerning Justin Fields, none of the weaknesses of Zach Wilson. I mean, this is the man who had surgery. This is the man who's had surgery in his uh, college career. I mean, this is the man who's not thick of build. That's another difference between him and Patrick Mahomes. You know, the, Zach Wilson doesn't have the girth or the big bones or the size, the prototypical size. Height, yes. Size, no. How is that going to play in the NFL? Why is that not being looked at a little bit more? I, maybe it is. I don't know. I don't know. But whoever drafts Justin Fields, and hopefully it's going to be the Washington football team, they're going to be getting themselves, man, a quarterback who I think when everything is all said and done, him and Trevor Lawrence and Trey Lance, when you're speaking about the 2024-25 season, those are going to be four of the top 8-12 to 12 quarterbacks in the league. And Zach Wilson, I don't know. I really don't know.
Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Please, everybody, this is the last segment of the podcast. So let's get everything together, clean up, make sure your seats are in the upright position. Trade tables are up. All trash and everything are off the ground. Please stow away any type of valuables. This landing is going to be smooth. You know what I'm talking about. Um, good show today. I gotta admit, I riffed a lot on the uh, baseball deal. Just, I don't know, man. You know, it's like you want to love baseball. You want baseball to come back to a little bit more semblance of importance in this society. You want it to be there with the NBA. You want it to be there with the NFL. And just the the rich history of the game. I mean, the important figures of the game. The heroes that have played baseball. I mean, those who have had the importance of playing baseball. I mean, we speak about, and I speak about Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby and Kurt Flood and Hank Aaron and and, uh, Willie Mays and, and, and those guys. Especially those times in the 60s and such. But even before, baseball has had such a rich history of just great players and incredible people. If you're speaking about Bob Feller and Hank Greenberg and Ted Williams and Bob Gibson and just all of those guys, man, it's just unbelievable. Roger Hornsby, all all of these great, great guys. And it's like baseball now, in some instances, has just kind of gone to a, you know, just not the stature that it once had. So, I don't know. That was one of the things that I was speaking about earlier in my podcast today. So, today was just a bunch of riffing. Today was just a bunch of me getting things off my chest. And I give you props, special dedications for hanging in there with me while I went ahead and did my therapy session in terms of wanting to get that off my chest. I feel better now. I feel good. Ready to rock, rock and roll. Ready to enjoy this weekend. Ready for next week. Got a great week. Going to be up in Mesquite for the night. So I'm looking forward to it. If the Lord is going to allow me to uh, make it toward that day, then hip, hip, hooray. All right. Before I move on, special dedication. And I just want to go ahead and uh, give my thoughts and prayers to the family of Terrence Clark, the freshman guard for the Kentucky Wildcats, the men's basketball team this past season. He died in a car accident in the Los Angeles area on Thursday. Man was only, he wasn't even a man. Young lad was 19 years old, 19. What police, L.A. Police Department Sergeant John Matassa told ESPN's Ramona Shelburne that Clark was a solo occupant in the vehicle that ran a red light going at a very high rate of speed in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles at approximately 2.10 East uh, Pacific Standard Time in the afternoon. The incident was captured on surveillance video. He collided with another vehicle that was preparing to make a left-handed turn. He struck the vehicle, hit a street lamp pole, and ultimately hit a brick wall. He was transported to Northridge Hospital and was later pronounced deceased as a result of the collision. He said, Matassa said the driver of the other vehicle who was struck did not claim any injuries or who was also in a truck. So Clark was driving a 2021 Hyundai Genesis. 
and he was not wearing his seatbelt properly, according to Matassa. I guess the only thing in terms of, I don't know, comfort or whatever is the fact that Clark's mother was at his side when he died. That was according to Adrian Wojnarowski. So, just a uh, just a sad story indeed. And uh, you know, when you're young, you know, yeah, it's just it's just terrible. It's just horrible. Nineteen years old, man. Not fair. It's not right. But you know, things happen in life, and you just uh, you just move on, and you wish the family nothing but uh, your love and support. Any way you can get it. And this is my way of giving it to him. Wendell's World in Sports. I am your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So let me end on this. LeBron James' tweeting game. <laughs> Jeez, man. LeBron, the Lakers star, posted and later deleted a tweet on Wednesday about the fatal police shooting of Michaela Bryant, 16-year-old black girl in Columbus, Ohio, in a series of tweets. James explained why he deleted the post. His first tweet, he said that anger does not... Anger does, anger does any of us good, what does he say here? Anger does not do any of us any good, including myself gathering all the facts and education does though. My anger still is there for what happened, that little girl, my sympathy for her family and justice prevail. Why are you going to take that down? Or why, why, I wonder why you took the first, why you took the post down. So the second tweet, I'm so damn tired of seeing black people killed by police. Uh, I took the tweet down because it's being used to create more hate. This isn't about one officer. It's about the entire system, and they always use our words to create more racism. I am desperate for more accountability. Amen, brother. I am um, I'm with you on that one. James's hometown of Akron, Ohio, is about 125 miles northeast from Columbus, which is the state capital. Man, I saw that video I broke that thing down like the Zapruder film, man, in terms of watching that thing. Look, you know, I don't think this was a situation where, again, I think this was more Kim Potter than it was Derek Chauvin in terms of what happened. Karen, uh, Kim Potter was the woman who accidentally shot uh, Dante Wright when she thought she was pulling out a taser instead of a gun. So I don't think this is a situation where we can claim racism. I don't think this was a situation where this guy who shot this guy was looking for, or shot this woman or shot this girl, was looking for a black person to murder or something like that. I'm, I'm not going there. But I am outraged. I am disappointed in multitude of people on that one. Because I was taking a look at the film. I was taking a look at the uh, instance of what happened. And from what I saw was the fact that when the police officer responded, he immediately, as soon as he got out of his car, he immediately put his his hand on his holster. Okay, so right there he's looking for shit to happen. Because what it seemed from the film was there were two females outside. There were two girls outside. One of the girls was talking shit. And I guess he was talking shit in the direction of the house where Michaela Bryant was. So Michaela and a couple of other friends, or I don't know who they were, came out of the house to confront the girl who was talking shit. And it seemed like, I don't know what set her off in terms of going after her, but from the video, from what I heard, and it was very unavailable, but from what I heard, sort of, kind of, I think she said something about her mother. I, I think it was it was something like that. So that would appear to uh, set her off. So 
Um, what happened was, it was like she knocked her to the ground, and as Reardon got out, you know, he went over there, and it was like, he went over there and really didn't do anything because the girl, not only was Michaela Bryant kicking the girl on the ground, there was another guy that came over and started kicking the girl that was already on the ground. So how much of a punk, how much of a bitch-ass faggot must you be to sit there and to kick a girl while she's down? I mean, why weren't you trying to get Michaela off of her? Michaela was a big girl. And the girl was down. She was hovering over her. And this punk-ass bitch is up there kicking her more than once hard, the girl on the ground. So the cop, number one, didn't get the guy off the girl who was kicking her. I mean, that's who he should have gone after the first part because no man should be having a violent act toward a girl. So number one, that guy should have gone over and tackled him or tased him or fucking shot him for doing some bullshit like that. But he didn't do that. So Michaela went from that situation over to attacking the other girl. And that's when the guy pulled out the gun and he fired a couple of times. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm at the behest once again to say, look, if I was an officer, uh, I would be shooting in that situation as soon as I got out the car. But that's the reason why I'm not a, an officer. And for those who are talking about, yeah, you know, they thought that his life was in danger and all these type of things. A, you're dealing with kids. B, you're in a situation where you should be taught a situation where a taser shouldn't be, a, a taser could be applied or, or something else, rubber bullets or something like that. Again, I would have, I don't know how justifiable it would have been, but if the guy would have shot the one guy who was hovering above the down girl and kicking her, and he said, hey, you know, I saw a guy beating up on a female, and this thing just told me to pull out a gun and shoot him. I mean, I probably would have been angry at that too, but I would have been like more justifiable in saying, yeah, I mean, you know, if you have a guy, regardless of what, skin color he is or anything like that. If you have a guy who is uh, prone to be beaten up and kicking women like that, then whatever happened to him, that's, you know, on him. Whether he gets tased, whether he gets choked, or whether he gets killed, shot and killed, uh, don't be putting your feet, your hands, or any part of your body on a female in a violent way like that. Because if he would have kicked her a couple times and kicked her in the head and she would have died, then, you know, what the fuck? So... My first reaction to Bob with the cop was to get him off the female because there should be no man, you know, inflicting any type of physical harm on a female. But instead, you know, he kind of, I don't know what he did, but he just kind of didn't do too much to get Michaela or the other guy off the girl. And as Michaela went over and uh, started swinging at the girl, the other girl, that's when he shot her. Again, not claiming racism. Was it a mistake? I don't know. I think it was. I think it was. But then again, for for us who want to shout and scream, this is not a uh, Derek Chauvin situation. This is not. I don't know. I don't know the guy's police history. I don't know what his relationship is with the community. I don't know what his background is. I don't know anything about that. I don't know if he's done some shit like this before. I don't know what the community thinks about him or anything like that. I have no idea. But in my opinion, this could have been handled differently on his part. And I also have to blame Bryant and the others for uh, putting themselves in a situation where this could happen. Man, we know, and I, I know black folks don't want to hear this shit. 
But I'm sorry, but guess what country we're living in? The history of violence upon the police, upon our community. The police ability to inflict violence on us and the lack of consequence happening. Man, what the hell are y'all doing starting a brawl with a police with with the police sitting right there? Come on, man, we should know better with something like that. We're gonna start a multiple person brawl in front of a police officer? At the very worst, you're gonna get killed. At the very best, you're gonna get put in a chokehold, you're gonna get stunned, you're gonna get shot. Come on, man, what the fuck are y'all doing? The police are sitting right there. And a bunch of Negroes are going to sit up there getting getting into a brawl with a white police officer. Come on, y'all. I mean, we got to be a little bit smarter than that. You know, we got to be a little bit more. And again, the, because what the one of the girls was talking shit, and that's the reason why y'all are going to start this. Well, congratulations. One girl, an honor roll student, is now dead. Congratulations. And the cop who shot her is going to get away with it. So, what did we accomplish here? Where are we going with here? Now, I'm not saying that the cop isn't to blame. Because he is. I thought he could have handled it better. But in a situation like this, I can't sit there and be like, the cop got out of the car talking about, oh yeah, look me, I got some Negro to kill. That's what I'm talking about. I can't go there. I can't sit there and expect the same justice for Michaela Bryant as I did for George Floyd. I can't do it. I can't do it. So, just a bad situation all around, man. Just a horrible situation all around. I don't know. So, you know, LeBron shouldn't have uh, should have kept that tweet up. Definitely should have kept that tweet up. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Let me definitely end with this. You know, I mentioned before about James Brown, about, uh, you know, my, my thoughts and feelings about James Brown. I'm going to end this podcast like this. Every once in a while, because Otis Redding is my musical hero, because how much I admire and adore Otis Redding as far as a historical person is concerned, because I wasn't around when he was living. I'm not that old. But, you know, since I'm definitely into Otis Redding, the man, the music, and everything, you know, sometimes in these podcasts, I want to, you know, let you guys know or let you know how much I just absolutely revere and adore and idolize the great Otis Redding. So as I'm putting this stuff down, I'm thinking about 59 years ago today, or April 22nd, Otis Redding was with the Pine Toppers at a club in Macon, Georgia called Club 15, doing his thing. I'm thinking about Otis Redding 57 years ago, April 22nd, 1964, at the Fairground Speedway in Nashville, Tennessee, where he's up there performing, supporting James Brown and the famous Flames, Solomon Burke, Garrett Mims, Dion Warwick. We're speaking about April 24th, 57 years ago today, Stanberg Auditorium in Youngstown, Ohio, supporting Moms Mabley. Speaking about today, April 25th, 19, oh, I'm sorry, April 25th, 1964, he's at the Cobo Arena in Detroit. Michigan, supporting James Brown and the Famous Flames, Solomon Burke, Mims, Dion Warwick. Thinking about what Otis was doing, performing 1966, 55 years ago at Auburn, Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama. April 24th, he's at the Florence Coliseum in Florence, Atlanta, excuse me, Florence, Alabama. 
doing two shows, 7 to 9.30, thinking about the idol, thinking about the great one, thinking about the legend, thinking about my hero, Otis Redding, 54 years ago, 1967, performing at UMBC, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, in Baltimore, Maryland, 650 per couple to see the show. Then he was on to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, at the Philadelphia Arena for the Ebony Soul Tour with Dion Warwick, Petty LaBelle, and the Blue Bloods, Blue Bells. Man, that's just my guy. But interesting story about Club 15. Interesting story about what happened in 1963 at that club, the summer of 1963, between James Brown and Joe Tex. And who was there that night performing? My hero, Otis Redding and the Pine Toppers. It was a club where James Brown, speaking about Club 15, James Brown almost murdered Joe Tex and possibly six innocent people. Again, it was, you, uh, you, you think, you know, hip-hop started these beefs and all this kind of nonsense, wrong. So what happened was Joe Tex and James Brown were bitter rivals. The beef started over a controversy about stage moves. Joe Tex thought that JB stole his trademark microphone kicking tricks, and Brown thought Tex stole them from him. So then what happened was, so that started simmering. Then both Joe Tex and James Brown covered a single Baby, You're Right at about the same time. Between the two versions, James Brown had the bigger hit, reaching number two in the R&B charts and also scoring on the pop charts. So Joe Tex got pretty heated and upset about that. Then James Brown stole Joe Tex's girlfriend, B. Ford, who was Joe Tex's ex-wife, then sent Joe Tex a letter telling him that he was through with her and that he could have her back. So basically he was done having sex with her, don't need her for anything else. Here, take back my seconds. Joe Tex responded to that, to that diss, to that put down by recording a record called You Keeper, which was basically a diss record. So Kumo D and LL Cool J, their little, their little uh, you know, Jack the Ripper and uh, all that kind of stuff that uh, the battle rap that those guys went through. Well, this is the audio that Joe Tex made dissing James Brown about, you know what, you're talking about, you know, you don't need my ex-wife anymore, that, that uh, you can have her back. Uh, here, take this, Joe. So you got that. That was Joe Tex's comeback in terms of a diss track on James Brown. So 
All this is brewing. All this is simmering. And now that we know James Brown is a nut job, James Brown is a nutcase. And you take a look at his background. You take a look at the, you know, where he came from and all this kind of stuff. You could understand that, you know, James Brown is, you know, you know, not, uh, not the uh, most menial guy in the world when it comes to, uh, you know, settling scores without any type of violence. So, the night of the shooting, Tex and Brown were playing a double build gig in Macon, right? So Brown was the headliner for the show. That was the uh, star of the show. So Joe Tex opened the show, coming on stage wearing a ratty, torn blanket, fell down to his knees, grabbed his back like he was in terrible pain, tangled himself up and hollered, Please, please, please get me out of this cape. For those who don't know, James Brown's signature song at that time was, Please, please, please don't go. And at the end of the program, after singing CD, please, 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 he would go to his knees and a guy would run out with a cape and put it over him. And as the flames are singing, please, please don't go, he would walk off the stage, you know, and and just despair and all this kind of stuff. And then the feeling would overwhelm him and then he'd throw the cape off of him and then he'd, you know, go back and start singing, please, please, please again until the feeling got too much for him. And then he would fall back down on his knees and then um, Danny Ray would run over and throw a blanket over him or throw the cape over him again and escort him off the stage and depending upon how the crowd reacted to this I mean he would be doing the same routine for about 15-20 minutes same thing come back get back on the microphone please 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 don't go I love you so ah fall down and I can't believe it this that and the other then the band would run over and help him up and throw the cape on him and help him off the stage and then he'd run back on again this that and the other so Joe Tex basically mimicked that or basically mocked that by um, you know having a ratty torn blanket, fall on his knees, grab his back while in pain, tangled himself up and holler, please, please, please get me out of this cave, ha, 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 doing this on a double bill in Macon where James Brown was the headliner and star of the show. James Brown being from that area, hadn't been back in that area for a while, didn't find that too funny. In fact, he was furious and he trailed Joe Tex to an after show at a local juke joint called... Club 15, where Redding and the Pine Toppers were playing the night in 1963. James Brown grabbed a gun, grabbed a couple of shotguns, went inside, and started firing. (laughs) Joe Tex was in there. Brown got a couple of guns, said, I want to take care of it my way. Not guns, shotguns. Went in there and started firing. He don't give a damn who else was in there. Someone from the bar returned fire and Joe fled out the back while Otis and Johnny Jenkins and the rest of the Pine Toppers hid behind the piano. <laughs> Good God. Apparently seven people were injured in the crossfire. Brown ran back to the tour bus, got behind the wheel and took off. The injured parties were given $100 each and told not to create any more trouble. There you go. James Brown was nuts. James Brown was nuts. The man was nuts. Again, Google James Brown crazy. And here's some of the stories that this guy was all about, man. I tell you, sometimes when you're rich and you're famous, I mean, you can get away with so much shit. You can get away with so much nonsense. People will put up with so much nonsense. And then after all this, they have a statue of this man. Interesting. Interesting. But that's the night where James Brown damn near killed seven people, including Joe Tex and possibly Otis Redding. So... We might not even heard of Otis Redding uh, if James Brown, you know, maybe wasn't such a bad shot. I don't know, but it was something else. All right, 
I am out of here. Speaking of Otis Redding, I think I'm going to end the program. I think my outro music is going to be Otis Redding inspired. I think I'm going to put on a little Otis Redding as I wish each and every one of you a good day, a good morning, a good afternoon, a good evening, a good tomorrow, a good next week, a good next month, a good next year. Please do what we can to uh, help those who need to be helped. Please do what we can to move this world in the proper place moving forward, not with discrimination, not with oppression, not with, not with privilege, not with ignorance. We do it with love, peace, unity, harmony. We do all those things. So time for me to uh, go ahead and uh, watch a little serial killer document documentaries. What else can signify love? Peace and unity. Otis, get me out of here. They like to take time now and drop the tempo one more time. This is a song that I want to dedicate to all the men in skirts. And I dig. Oh, she may be weary. Them young girls, they do get weary. Miniskirt dress, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when she gets weary, you try your little tenderness, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, that. I know she's waiting, just anticipating for things that you'll never, never, never possess. No, no, no. But while she's there waiting, try just a little bit of tenderness. That's all you got to do. Now it might be a little bit sentimental, no. But she has her griefs and care, yeah, 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 yeah. But the soft words, they are spoke so gentle, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it makes it easy, easier to bear. Oh. Won't regret it, no, no. The young girls, they don't forget it. Love is their whole happiness. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's all so easy. All you got to do is try, try.